Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Well, I don't always do this. Don't like to try and come up with some sort of creative catch-all name or something like that for each Saturday slate because I think more times than not, I think that's just kind of stupid. But I'm going to do it for this week, and I think I think this actually works. So hear me out on this. Okay. This is the Change the Narrative Saturday. In the SEC, at least. I think we have an SEC game at each time slot this Saturday, week six, which I threw up a little bit in my mouth just saying that, but a game in each time slot where I think that really applies with Mizzou, A&M, Kentucky. All of a chance to do something pretty significant to change the national narrative about their respective programs. How do you feel about that very not creative name at all for week six in the sec yeah i mean i agree with it uh i think that it's pretty rare you know as we've talking we've been talking about all season for a season to feel as wide open kind of across the board as this one does and often as the uh calendar kind of turns to october a lot of those dreams are starting to fade um but we've seen kind of more and more you know we have teams like mizzou that are undefeated that have a chance to, you know, all their goals are in front of them. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the times these teams that weren't, you know, your Alabamas, your Georgias, um, your LSUs for one year, those teams, we don't have a team like that in the SEC. I mean, you know, there's only a couple of undefeated teams. They're not the, the ones that we expected. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting time. If all three of those games, I, I think we need to have some sort of an index, right? If mm-hmm. Mizzou beats LSU, A&M beats Bama, Kentucky beats Georgia, those, those are the, the change in the narrative opportunities for those respective programs where a certain level of craziness, we would say, is in play for this season. And I think if this weekend, if zero out of those three games go to the underdog, I think we will leave the weekend saying order's been restored. That's maybe what it's going to feel like because obviously preseason top five teams, LSU, Bama, and Georgia taking care of business, that, that's what it would feel like. If one of those three underdogs hits, it's kind of like, all right, we still got some spiciness. This year could still be kind of all over the place in the SEC. If two out of those three hit, I think we're thinking all of a sudden, we don't know anything. This is crazy. There are still probably a few things that we can expect to happen, but madness is very much in play if all three of those things hit it's 2007 that's yep that's what i think we will feel like that's what we will be talking about on sunday we will dig into whether or not those things can happen whether or not we think those things are going to happen we have a great show lined up two interviews as promised we've got cole kubelik breaking down a bunch of o-line things across the conference and then the freak himself javon curse the former Florida star, he's going to join us as well. And then we're going to end with some lad of the week. So fully loaded pod. I know the preview pods have gone long. They've pretty much all been over two hours, I think. Hopefully that doesn't upset too many people. I like to cram as much content as possible. We've got a lot to be able to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about. So Connor was giving me some some analytics the other day that people were aver- were averaging like uh, an hour and a half per listen. So I was like, hey, you know, if it's if you're two hours in, that's too much for you. So that some people listen. I don't know what to tell you. I got tagged in something. I was like waking up on Sunday after LSU got beat down. Somebody was like, well, I want to hear like uh, Will's take on this LSU loss after he like calms down. And I'm like, brother, I recorded that like a couple of hours ago. I don't know how you're all the way through this. So I appreciate you know the guys that, that listen immediately, the guys and lads and lasses, obviously. But yeah, people like longer podcasts. So yeah, we'll keep doing them. 
Yeah, I, I will. I will keep doing more pods and the recap pods. We're not. We're not going to be on two, two and a half hours. It's just not the nature yeah. of the piece. But with some of these preview pods, with all the things that we get to talk about, sometimes after a Saturday of football in which we probably miss a few things and go under the radar, this is the place that we like to be able to talk about it. So let's get into the week six slate. Let's start at a place where my eyes are going to be glued on Saturday. Cannot wait for this one. Number twenty-three LSU is a six and a half point favorite going into Columbia. Number 21, Mizzou. Will, the over-under I have for this one, 147 yards of offense for Mizzou. <laughs> You're taking the over, right? Yeah, probably. Uh, listen, a good one would be 147 yards for Luther Burton. <laughs> yeah, true. That's a good point. That's a really good point. 147 yards of offense. Where did I come up with that? That is how many yards Mizzou gained the last time that they hosted a matchup of ranked teams. Think about that. That is the last time that they hosted a matchup of ranked teams. It was a 34-0 loss to Georgia, 2014. Pretty rough. CBS was there. It was one of those 11 a.m. CBS games, which is always kind of strange. Throws you off a little bit when it's not 3.30. This one, Mm -hmm. also 11 a.m. local time. I'm going to assume... I don't know this for certainty, but you, you messaged me about this last week, and I almost changed my pick at the last second, decided not to. I'm going to assume that for an 11 a.m. kick, Brian Kelly is going to have the lad stop it off at whatever local car dealership he can find. Maybe get the, get everybody stretched out, uh, get him some limp biscuit. I, I don't know. I don't know what pumps the kids up these days, whatever <laughs> it was last week. <laughs> yeah, Chase, throw whatever playlist you had. Take your cleats, throw those in the fire. Take whatever quotes you wrote. Mm-mm, those are all cursed now. Those, those are all basura. They do not belong. Get whatever college pregame mix you had back in the day. Fire that one up. I don't know. Just You're desperate at this point to make sure that, the, that they're going to be fired up, especially on the defensive side of the ball. It's crazy to think that the last time that Mizzou won a home game involving a pair of ranked teams was the 2013 regular season finale against a Johnny Manziel-led Texas A&M squad. We actually did that game for It Just Meant More a few years back. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to that pod if you're a Mizzou fan. Henry Josie, the 57-yard run to win it. But 10 years, man, 10 years. We, t- we talk a lot about this. And I-, I think it's something that is worth keeping in mind for a Mizzou program that feels disrespected. I think a lot of people feel like, hey, why don't we talk about this team more? Um, I-, I could bring up a lot of different stats. I think it's like 5-22 and 22 against AP Top 25 teams in the playoff era. Uh, under 500 against SEC competition in the, in, in the playoff era. These are the moments, though, when you can change that. It, it isn't, oh, if you have a nice September, that's going to change the national narrative about you. Colorado's kind of bucking that trend a little bit with how they're being talked about. But if you want people to think differently about you, which, look, Mizzou, I think it aspires to have that, especially as we enter this new era of the SEC, wherein a team like Mizzou can be washed over that much easier. You're not going to turn heads by going seven and five or eight and and four. Okay, that's just not going to happen. What you will, what you will be able to do, is turn some heads if you beat a team with superior talent like LSU, and to do so within the flow of a relevant season. It's one thing to do it. In Toby Keith fashion, a how do you like me now game, a Dan Mullins last game at Florida type game with against a Florida team that's left for dead, even beating a South Carolina team that creeps in the top 25. All right, fine. We're going to talk about that on these airwaves. That's what we do. But if you want to be part of the national conversation in this sport, 
you win a game like this. And Mizzou has a prime opportunity to do that because of the matchup and because we know what LSU struggles with. Obviously, these teams, what they have done well, what they haven't done well, you would think that favors Mizzou. If LSU, with its season on the line last week, which I think is fair to say when you're trying to avoid that dreaded second loss, if that LSU team missed 34 tackles at Ole Miss, as Brian Kelly diagnosed, can we say with certainty that they are showing up in Columbia for an 11 a.m. kick, pissed off, and ready to go? I I can't say that. Brian Kelly doesn't even know that. There's no way. We, we can't assume that. And by the way, Shea Dixon, who does great work covering LSU now for on three, he had that note about the 34 missed tackles. That's been making the rounds. Yep. We talked about this a little bit on the recap pod. I think LSU would rather see an apocalypse this weekend than Luther Burden. Okay? Man. Tell me I'm wrong. I feel like we could put four people on Luther Burden and two of them would fall down. I think, yes. I think those odds still favor Luther Burden. He leads the country in receiving. He's first in power five in catches. Brandon Haynes had this quote from former Oklahoma uh, transfer Theo Weiss, who's had a really nice stretch uh, for Mizzou, has seen Luther Burden up close. And he said, quote, this this is a few months ago he said this. He said, quote, in fall camp, I said CeeDee Lamb was the best I've played with, Lou making a real case for the best teammate I've played with. Nobody has contained that guy yet. Nobody. And I'm guessing that LSU is going to put a whole lot of Sage Ryan on Luther Burden in the slot. Will, uh, you just took a deep breath. What what yeah. what do you think of that matchup as an LSU fan? Not good things. I mean, yeah, like there's not a guy on the team that you feel good about with Luther Burden. And like you said, it's about how they're using them. And all of this kind of comes together, right? Like this is such a poetic game. And we have a couple of those on the schedule because you think about Mizzou as this team that could not effectively use the talent that Missouri always produces, right? They couldn't use, you know, th- these like, amazing threats that like Mizzou will always have like a guy, you know, and, and Burden is kind of the next in the line of guys that last year they struggled to get him involved. We saw it in September, right. But in these big games, it was, it was harder to see. And now we're starting to see, Oh my gosh, you know, Brady Cook is starting to, you know, come into his own finally, you know, after all these years, Luther Burden is starting to be used, you know, in a more interesting and effective way. And where I'm going with that is even if LSU had a guy, even if they had like a number one corner, they could stick on him they're using them in a way where they're going to need two or three. I agree. And I think what kind of makes this matchup that much more challenging is that the question we were asking about Mizzou early on has kind of been answered. Theo East, Mookie Cooper, those guys have been really, really good the last three games. And obviously Brady Cook playing at the level that he is, he's able to kind of work through some of his progressions. If Mizzou fans have a sense of humor, they will boo Brady Cook again. Um, that's the last time they saw him at home would be really funny. I'd get a kick out of that. Eli Drinkwitz, probably not so much. My guess, he would go up to each Mizzou student individually and say, why are you booing this young man? I like him enough to date my daughter. Um, I think he's like out there, like, no, stop. He's like the guy from Animal House that's like starting to stop the riot. He's like, stop booing Brady Cook. He's a fine young man. Just one by one. Hey, what, whatever, whatever it takes to be able to get the heat off of his quarterback. Brady Cook has not been much of a rushing threat these past like three weeks, basically like with the injury that that he's had to his knee that that he's playing through, but he's torched the last three defenses that he's faced 9.8 yards per pass attempt, 
Uh, 10 touchdown passes, zero turnovers, obviously. LSU has been really bad against quarterbacks that can move the pocket. And Brady LSU's Cook has been really bad against quarterbacks. Not bad against Will Rogers. Not bad against <laughs> well, Will Rogers. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'd still, I'd still consider Will Rogers the the SEC's all time leader in completions, a quarterback. I think he's still no, that's that's fair. He's just kind of like in a weird place, like you know, like sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. We just got the bad one, but yeah, yeah. the 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 thing that I think has helped Cook in some of these spots is that maybe sometimes he has defaulted to his legs and he hasn't necessarily worked through his progressions, or he hasn't had a reason to work through his progressions, and now he's staying in the pocket a little bit more. And the fact that he doesn't want to get behind the the line, or he doesn't want to to run past the line of scrimmage and use his legs that way, maybe that's kind of helping him a little bit more. And it's been better for the Mizzou passing game. I don't know that LSU can defend that. I, I I do not know that they can defend that. But let's not forget the other side of this. This is what we need to remember. Wait, before and, you say that, really quick, I like saw that, and I was going back and forth with Mizzou fans last week, and I saw some crazy numbers on him that you know, like everybody like you know knows their guy and knows what he's good at, and this is stats that I saw in Luther Britton leading into last week where he did had his probably his best game of the year, close to it, where they went off against Vandy. Probably his best game would be Kansas State because Kansas State was a bigger opponent, but this is what I saw. I was like, oh man, this is why his yards are even more impactful. Um, before last week, where he had an incredible game, he was leading all Power Five receivers in yards after catch. Uh, yards after contact, missed tackles forced, and yards per route run. So we have a guy who was leading power five and probably still is after that week in missed tackles forced. And we have a defense who their own coach is like, we can't freaking tackle. <laughs> Bad combination, it seems like. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, if LSU slows down Luther Burden, it it will be the outlier of LSU season. That, that yeah. truly would be because Hang nobody has contained him. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Held Luther Burden to six catches for 80 yards. Hang yeah, a Exactly. That would be such a dub. Six catches for 80 yards at this point. Yeah, if, if you're an LSU fan and that's the production you get out of the guy who's just been insane this year, then you'd feel great about it. But I think looking at it from the other side too, this Mizzou defense, it's been great so far. Six in the country in yards per rush allowed. Top run defense in the SEC through week five. Mm-hmm. They have not faced anything close to like what LSU has in the passing game. Remember that. And I guess skill positions, you could include uh, Logan Diggs in that department as well. I think he's shown some really nice promise as the RB1 after transferring from Notre, from Notre Dame. Kansas State, like pretty good group of receivers, kind of new look. Vandy, Will Shepard, Jade McGowan, nice players. They're not Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas. They are mm-hmm. not. Remember how I said on the recap pod that it's a bummer for LSU that Jaden Daniels, uh, Malik neighbors, Brian Thomas, they're all draft eligible. So it kind of feels like this is man, a wasted opportunity. It could be a blessing in disguise in a game like this. Those guys still have money to make. Don't forget that. Do not forget that. Even the idea of playing for a national title, even if I think that's off the table, maybe it's, it's looking like it's going to be an uphill climb to repeat in the West. You know what, what awaits you. If nothing else, I would not question the motivation of those guys, knowing that that is still up for grabs. And you're still trying to put film out there. Jaden Daniels, a guy who's really trying to improve his stock in a really deep quarterback class, what it looks like. Malik Neighbors as well, with all the really good first-round receivers that are up there. Brian Thomas is a guy that's going to start appearing on those draft boards. Absolutely. So like those guys still have a lot to play for and should still be fired up for this one. 
Yeah. The last and, and remember t- too, like the last so the last Mizzou win at home in a battle of ranked teams, Manziel was pretty banged up if you go back and watch that game. And it was a lost season for AM. Season was over. They they were not going to go to a national championship. They had all that buzz in the offseason, weren't able to live up to it. But Manziel was still out there playing through pain to help his draft stock. And if you don't yep. think that's the case, I, I I would definitely push back on he's, he's gonna say, yeah, he's out there for his guys, all those different things, whatever. I know that's not what fans want to hear. They, they don't. That is like the worst thing ever. I'm going to play for me. You should be playing for the name on the front, not the name on the back. I get all that. But I think that's still going to favor LSU. I think this game, which has an over-under of 64 and a half, I think it's a shootout. I don't think that, that's bold to say that. I'll take the over to hit, but I'll take LSU to win and cover barely, barely, with a 42 to 35 win. Yeah, I mean, that's such LSU is such a fun, interesting team, especially as a non LSU fan. I mean, as you guys know, I don't really partake in any like the doom and gloom stuff. I feel like life is too happy to just sit there and be mad. Like, it's funny. Like, that's my thing. And I counter, I sent you the podcast. It was like one of the LSU podcasts. It was just 10 minutes of dude yelling about how bad LSU is. And like, I think that's funny. Um, but at the same time, it's like you have to be objective and say, you know, when LSU can get two or three stops, they become a team that can win games. They got like zero against Ole Miss. And so point being, it, it, LSU becomes such an interesting team to watch and predict because logically speaking, they so far and away have the best offense in the SEC. I mean, from what we've seen through this entire season, yeah, outside of like the, yeah, yeah I, I mean, think that's and, fair. And, and outside of that one kind of weird half against FSU, which whatever, I mean, old boy fell down really is what happened. But point being, you know, they have had far and away the best offense in the SEC. Now, that being said, they have one of, if not the worst, defense in the SEC, which as an LSU fan, this is like the 2014-15 Saints. It's so strange. It's like you're watching your teams completely invert because the Saints can't play offense now. But anyway, I digress. Uh, point being, you know, every game is going to be a pick from here on out if you're an LSU fan. Because if they play the style of defense that they play against Ole Miss, anybody can beat them. I mean, anybody in Division One could beat that defense. Um, But at the same time, they have an offense that with the lack of dominant defense, with the lack of like some massive contender, like you could see LSU being in a pick'em game with literally anyone in America. But you could also, that's the thing, you could see them losing or beating anyone in America. So that's kind of where I'm at with Mizzou. I love the 11 a.m. start time as an LSU fan. I think that the last thing you want is to get Mizzou you know, like give them time to like prepare and everything. I think that, you know, the if we get up to a, a similar start with similar vibes to the Mississippi State game, I think it's going to be a good one. But yeah, I, what scares me as well, if you remember, like I said, the Ole Miss game is like 2020 Mississippi State for LSU. They went to Mizzou two weeks later after, you know, squishing Vandy. And I remember thinking, okay, it's Mizzou. Like we're, we're going to get back on track against Mizzou. It felt just like this. It was like, okay. We're going to get on track. This is Mizzou. We already beat this bad team. Da-da-da. Now it's like, okay, we got Brian Kelly. Like, da-da-da. We're going to figure this out. And I do think there's an element here where Mizzou could certainly win this game. I'm going to really hope and pray that LSU wins, and therefore I'm going to pick them. But, I mean, like I said, it's all going to come down to Luther Burden. It's all going to come down to adjustments. I'm going to be checking in, you know, daily to see what the depth chart's going to be for LSU because there's just no shot they bring out those same starting 11 on defense. They have, I want to see what their adjustments are because that team we saw on Saturday isn't winning eight yeah. games <laughs> i agree that team that that was there on saturday is not winning this game against mizzou no I, shot I don't, 
yeah, no shot whatsoever, too many missed tackles. It would be disastrous watching those guys run in open space. And, you know, as much as I'm tempted to just look at the matchup and say, look at all these things that Mizzou has going in its favor in this one, what I keep thinking about, and this has been my best defaults with picks this year, because my I, I know my picks suck, like whatever. That's someone I'm paid to do. If you want to dog me for my picks, if you want to slide into my DMs and tell me that I'm the biggest idiot for picking a specific game, do that, whatever. I don't really care. It's not going to impact me. My job is to be able to break these things down and tell you what I think could happen and tell you maybe why it happened after the fact. What I cannot picture for the life of me is waking up on Sunday morning and saying, huh, Mizzou is 6-0, and and they just beat an LSU team that fell to 3-3. Three and three. I don't think that happens. I don't think that happens. And that, to mm-hmm. me, is what I just couldn't get over this week. And I, and I wrote about about Mizzou and kind of the historical perspective of this game. Shameless plug. Read it on SaturdayDownSouth.com. Um, but I just couldn't get over that. And sometimes when, when we're in this business, we're making picks. Sometimes it's better just to default to that rather than tell, tell myself, well, I don't think a soul can tackle Luther Burden. And I don't know that LSU is going to show up looking particularly – looking particularly great on that on that side of the ball even if those adjustments are made but i hope this one is good if this one is 42 to 35 that's fun that's still mm-hmm. in a weird way kind of a win for mizzou although obviously winning this game beating lsu that's the opportunity that's what that, that's what mizzou fans are obviously hoping for they're not going to be searching for moral victories when they feel like this is a very favorable matchup for them yeah and like i'll, I'll say too like i you know i've been leading the charge on like before this season, I'm just sick of watching Mizzou. And like you said, it's like, I can understand Mizzou fans be like, okay, well, I was talked about because you guys have done the same thing every single year under drink, but this year does feel different. And like, I will say that, like, it, despite, you know, the thicker kicker having to come in and save them a little bit against K-State, that's what good teams do. That's what else you couldn't do against Ole Miss. So at the end of the day, sometimes you have to win those games like that. And I think that's a testament to a game that Mizzou used to blow. So yeah, I think that it is a very, like, it's, it's, it's even if Mizzou loses this game, all, like I said, all their goals are pretty much in front of them. They're having so far a great season, or, or at least a better than expected season. Um, but yeah, this is, I will credit Mizzou a ton. I think that the Mizzou team that we thought about in the offseason versus now, I think has completely changed, you know, based on how their the offensive play call has made a difference. So I will say, like, I credit the mess out of them, and I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, Mizzou's just going to roll over to LSU. Like, if there is a Mizzou team that we've seen, especially under drink, that can win this game, it's certainly this one. I agree. If there is a Mizzou team in the the post Pinkle era who can win a game like this, I think it's this version of Mizzou. Yeah, I, I don't even think I don't even think the Drew Locke teams were were necessarily built this way. If you look at how much they struggled against teams that actually had elite talent, that that to me, like they had, I think the the one win against Florida on the road in the swamp, and other than that, it was it was a really rough go against those more talented teams in the SEC. So yeah, I, I'm I'm there with you. I hope this game is good. It would be really deflating for Mizzou if this was just a repeat of that 2014 Georgia game that I mentioned. For the sake of Mizzou fans, I hope that is not the case for this one. All right, Vandy, Florida. Florida's an 18 and a half point favorite. The over under I have for this one will is 25 Florida points. 25, not that much. Yeah. Uh, that's not the actual team. Uh, over-under. It's not. It is made up, but it's significant for a couple of different reasons. Last year, Florida scored 24 points in a loss at Vandy. Yep. This this season, Florida is averaging 25 points per game on the nose. Hmm. That is a mark that it has only hit two times in five opportunities this season. 
if you caught Billy Napier's press conference on Monday, you saw him have an interesting response when he was essentially asked about why his team has struggled in multiple areas, one of those being the offensive play calling. And Napier said, you know, some of these questions you weren't asking a couple weeks ago. Napier saying, hey, uh, when it was working after beating Tennessee, nobody questioned me or questioned the play calling duty, so why now? I don't... Things have changed? Uh, yes, Will, you are correct. There has been a material change. <laughs> yeah. Don't often find myself having to respond like this to a, an SEC head coach, a Power 5 head coach. Eh, shoot, any coach at this level. Um, but I'll, I'll do my best to explain this, this process. When you win and you score a lot of points, we don't have a reason in the media to question why something is working. When you lose and you lose badly, we have a reason to question if something is working. Also, when you have the worst scoring defense in the SEC at 25 points per game like Florida does, and you can't even hit 30 points at home against Charlotte, yes, we get to question a coach making $7 million who calls offensive plays, is the last SEC head coach that is also calling plays on the offensive side of the ball. We get to question him. That is the way that it works. If if Billy Amazing. doesn't... I, wild concept. Very, very wild concept. If Billy Napier does not understand why there has been a material change since the Tennessee game, or... Alternatively, if he doesn't remember answering the same exact questions at SEC Media Days as Nick De La Torre brought up, I I don't know. He might be too far gone. He might be. 18 points per game against Power 5 competition does not scream, I should still be running this offense and you and nobody should be questioning me. That is the time in which we questioned you. Okay, That's the way that this job works. And I'm saying this as someone who, Will, I think you would agree with this. I've probably defended Billy Napier more times than not. Have I, is that yeah. a fair thing to say? Yeah. Okay. So when I saw those comments, I was like, wait a minute, maybe we don't understand or maybe Billy doesn't understand rather how this works in a results-based business wherein things really change in a hurry. If Billy Napier was leading an offense that was scoring uh, 35, you know what? No, even just the 29 points per game that it, that it had, I guess he's talking about the Tennessee game, right? If they were just scoring 29 points per game and you had one bad week or whatever, his comment is justified, but you've really only had one impressive half of offense against power five competition this season. And when you're now very much in the minority with how you're operating, yes, we are going to ask you questions about that. You're going to receive questions about that. I thought that was baffling. I was surprised that Billy Napier was taken aback by questions about, about his offense, the way that he operates. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's so, it's kind of puzzling, right? Because after the Tennessee game, I was saying, it feels like this team is growing up. It feels like Billy Napier is maturing. It feels like, all this guy that was kind of this young hot shot is like starting to learn how to win in the SEC. And then, yeah, like everything has changed. I think that's a really good point to say it. It's like, yeah, when you have like a, you know, leaping the shield penalty, when you have all this weird stuff happen, you know, you go into the Kentucky game with like, you know, the best defense, so-called best rush defense in the SEC and you get run all over. Yeah. We are, our opinions of you changed. Like we were talking about. And it's like, you know, like I said, you go into that game and your run defense played awesome. Then they get Ray Davis. And suddenly we don't know anything about you because what we thought we knew was completely incorrect. So, yeah, I mean, even if you go back to that Tennessee game, it's not like 
their offense was like this juggernaut. I mean, they got a really short field uh, thanks to, you know, lad of the decade, Desmond Watson. Um, and and also, you know, the turnovers that they created, uh, Tennessee missing fourth down. So really that was a showing for their defense, I feel. Because even in that game, they scored 29 points and one of which was a three-yard drive, you know, so or, or nine-yard drive. So yeah, I don't think this Florida team has a good offense. I I'm, I'm, I think that they at least have an identity, which is what they didn't have last year. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's super fair to question specifically their offense because despite how poorly their defense played on Saturday, I don't think on the season that's really been the problem. And there are people listening to this who probably think like, oh, of course, you, you're going to defend the media. When you're sitting at home watching these games, don't you feel like it's a fair thing to question when uh, – Eight of the first, like eight of the first nine touches, whatever it was, go to Montreal Johnson instead of Trevor Etienne. Are, are, aren't you allowed yep. to, to question these things? Like this is this is the way that this job works. And, and to me, I, I was so surprised that someone who is really not pushed back, I think, a lot and has shown restraint at certain points that his predecessor did not have. I thought that was a a pretty rare lapse from Billy Napier in understanding his surroundings, understanding his situation. But as it relates to this game, I think Florida avenges last year's loss to Vandy. I think they win this one like 35 to 14. Maybe they get a defensive score, something like that, a pick six. Uh, obviously, this game is at home. I'm not really sure what in the world to expect from the Vandy quarterback situation with, with Swan banged up. Ken Seals played last week, played all right, I guess, but someone who didn't play the entire 2022 season. You want to talk, like Max Johnson is is kind of leader in the clubhouse for a while. I can't believe that guy didn't transfer. Um, Ken Seals is actually the leader in the SEC because that guy did not play at all last year and he was QB3 yep. and he stayed at Vandy and now he is playing uh, because of Mike Wright transferring to Mississippi State and Swan being banged up. So uh, yeah, that but a student Florida's. athlete right there. He wants that Vanderbilt at the top of his diploma. He had more rice. <laughs> I, I won't hate on that. You get a Vanderbilt. No, it's three, awesome. Man. Yeah, that, that works. Yeah. Yeah. No, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, something a little bit wrong with the Florida offense. I think they bounce back a bit, but against obviously lesser competition. Who knows if Billy Napier has his team score like 24 points and they win 24 to 14 or something like that. And people question the offense and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just won a football game. What are, what are, what are you doing? It's like, well, yeah, Vandy's averaging like like twice that allowed. So, yeah, that's the way this works. Okay. Yeah, and unfortunately with them too, I think the home road splits have been pretty tough. I mean, I mean, that could just simply be the difference in the Tennessee games because they were in they were in the Tennessee game at the end in Knoxville last season. And this year it was just kind of a blow up for Florida because it was in Gainesville. Not to make it that simple, but this team plays completely differently in front of a home crowd. I think it's very, very fair to say that. As much as we talk about guys like Stoops struggling on the road a little bit, Billy has been the biggest night and day guy because we see the Tennessee game at home in front of a home friend. Suddenly we start giving the ball to ETN. He sees the home fans. He's like, don't throw stuff at me. I'm going to put an ETN. But then he hits the road and they, that's, they lost at Vandy last year. And this game is at home. So this should be a blowout, you know? It's, it's because Travis ETN is closer by proximity because, and, um, I, I guess that's <laughs> a terrible example, but you know, last week when he's off playing that game in London and he's on another continent, he can't get after Billy on you know on Twitter and say, "Hey, the give, bird, give my yeah. brother." Yeah, like what? He's not going to do that. So yeah, you're exactly right. You know they play like a different team at home. Trevor Etienne starts getting the football more. Alabama two and a half point favorite on the road. Texas A and M. The over under I have is four A and M sacks on Jalen Milrow. Uh, this this is a troubling stat if you're an Alabama fan. Jalen Milrow has started in four games against Power Five competition in his career. 
in every single one of those games, including his first career start, which was last year against AM, he has taken at least four sacks. If you're throwing the ball, I don't know, 35, 40 times a game, okay, you can kind of live with that a little bit. That's a lot for a guy who has averaged 20 pass attempts in those matchups. Um, and as my guy uh, at CFB Jared, CFB underscore Jared on Twitter reminded me, uh, Joe Milrow also still doing the thing that I hate where he just drifts out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage instead of throwing the football away. It's like, dude, you just lost three yards because you didn't throw the football into the fifth row. You can do that. You're yeah. not going to get penalized. Uh, I just I hate that. I can't say that. I also hate for him that this matchup is against an AM defense that we were dogging a few weeks ago after the Miami performance, rightfully so. But since yeah. then, they've been really, really solid. And yeah, favorable matchups. Okay, get that. Offensive lines. Um, Auburn's offensive line, Arkansas's offensive line, not going to rank probably in the top half of the SEC this season, but still. But neither is Bama, so there you go. <laughs> Good. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I guess jury's still out on that a little bit. In the last three games, the A&M defense, take away the defensive score against Auburn, nine points per game allowed. They have allowed an average, get this, they've allowed an average of eight completed passes in their last three games. In the year of our Lord 2023, that is ridiculous teams have not been able to throw the football 42 percent passing 94 passing yards per game allowed five yards per pass attempt 3.5 yards per play allowed in the last two games alone so just the home game against auburn and then arkansas at jerry world 30 tfls 14 sacks that is that's good that that means boys are eating up front they are big time this is a defensive front with McKinley Jackson, I'll bang the drum team, Shamar Turner, Walter Nolan, Fidel Diggs, those dudes are getting after it. If Bama is not firing off the ball on the road, hostile atmosphere, that will continue. That's pretty much the same group that did this to Milrow last year. He had three turnovers in the first half of that game last year. Two were via strip sacks. So from that perspective, it's a really interesting game for the Jalen Milrow arc if he looks a lot better. And if it's in a tougher atmosphere and if he shows that progress against an AM defense that's playing a lot better, I think that's really interesting. Does he come out and look rattled on the road? Is he forced into some bad decisions? That we don't know. The last two years, the AM offense has had these out-of-body experiences against Bama. It's been the running joke that Jimbo has saved all the good plays for Bama. Mm-hmm. Now all the good plays are out there all the time. They're not, they're not holding anything. They, they can just throw that out there against Louisiana Monroe or against Auburn or against Arkansas, whatever. Does that change, perhaps, how Bama defends this A&M team? That's what I think is interesting. Does it change their overall defensive philosophy seeing this sample size and not just being like, whoa, they're doing things pre-step motion and RPOs and they're spreading us out in ways that we're not used to seeing from A&M on film? I wonder if that's what it looks like because you would maybe think best plan to shut down this A&M offense, heavy blitzing. But then again, veteran quarterback like Max Johnson, he's pretty good at reading blitzes. I still go back to that 2020 LSU Florida game. You remember that where Grantham thought. Buddy, do I. Finally some positive memories. Grantham, for whatever reason, thought, (laughs) I got this true freshman LSU quarterback in Max Johnson. I don't care that he's the son of a former NFL player. This guy doesn't know how to read a defense for the life of him. I'm just going to send corner blitz after corner blitz after corner blitz. And Max Johnson would see, oh, 
there's a corner coming from the far side. That receiver's open. Boom, 20 yards. Oh, that receiver, he's open too, coming from a corner blitz. I'll hit that guy. He's like, thank you, Todd Grantham, for giving me a first read in this hostile yep. atmosphere. It's 2020, but still, if you're Bama, you know that these receivers can make you pay. These are not necessarily a bunch of guys who, like, you know, if you're facing Auburn, it's a little bit different, right? You you take your chances on those guys winning those matchups against those Auburn receivers. Against AM, I don't know that you want to do that. That Kool-Aid McKinstry Evan Stewart matchup is one of the best wide receiver cornerback matchups that we will have in the SEC all year. Maybe one of the best in all of college football. It is that good. I cannot wait to see that. McKinstry kind of lining up exclusively on the outside. Stewart, about three-fourths of the snaps that he plays uh, are on the outside. Interested to see if Robert Patrick Petrino pri- tries to maybe put him in the slot a little bit more in this one. Shutting Evan Stewart down, not easy, no matter who is on him. Go ask Bama about that. He had his first career 100-yard game in that matchup last year. Unlike last year, Bama also has to deal with Anaya Smith. Speaking of Anaya Smith, the quote, uh, sure, I guess let's call it a quote, let's call it a soundbite that made the rounds. This was weird. He said it's personal with Bama. And the quote, I guess, if you want to have a takeaway was, uh, I know what Nick Saban wants and we're going to mess that up. If them boys don't got no momentum, we're going to have to take that away immediately. I I don't know. Go go listen to the full minute soundbite on Twitter. I, I don't really want to repeat that just because I think you'll Can I get leave context, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you'll get context, but a little bit of a Michael Scott sentence that starts and he doesn't <laughs> know where it's going. I, it's found it along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just sometimes I just start a sentence and just yeah, hope to figure it out along the way. It, it just sounded like a guy who realized he was about to say Bama isn't playing up to the Bama standard. And then he yeah. saw the wheels kind of turning in his head, found a way, a very confusing way to back out of it. I don't know. Take of it what you will. I will not be of the belief that you can say with this Bama team, oh, don't poke the beast. Jimbo's best two games against Bama came on the heels of him going scorched earth on Saban over the recruiting stuff. So I don't really want to hear Mm -hmm. that anymore. To me, that doesn't really play. And JC Latham talked about all this disrespect that Bama was getting. And then they come out looking like that against Texas. They're in a dogfight against USF. I I don't really care about that. I just don't. So people will play the results on that strange kind of sort of bulletin board material. Terry and Arnold had a comment saying like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll ask Anaya Smith like what Nick Saban wants. I guess he knows. I'll just have to ask him that on Saturday. I don't know. Whatever. Here's how I think this plays out. I think Bama wins on a walk-off field goal. Okay. I think it's two years ago, but on the side of Bama. Down 21 to 14, fourth quarter. Kyle Field is rocking. Max Johnson throws a pick. Bama gets a short field. Touchdown to tie it. Then a stop and a walk-off field goal to win it. So I'm going to go Bama 24-21, barely covering that spread, theme of the week. Bama wins this in a thriller. So I think this is a statement win for Texas a and uh, I think that, I think that, and this kind of goes back to the whole, like, I'm tired of seeing the same thing. I think that if you look at this game, okay, it's exactly how I felt about Ole Miss. And I will say, if Alabama wins this game, it will actually change my opinion of Alabama. Um, okay. Because I, I, I think that, you know, if you look at how last year played out, okay, you look at an Alabama team that is markedly worse and an A&M game that is markedly better, and you've changed the environment from Bryant-Denny Stadium to College Station. 
and you have taken play calling duties out of uh, out of Jimbo's hands and given them to Robert Patrick. Um, so what I feel brewing here, something I talked about in the offseason, the secondary Toby Keith game. The, I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. And that's what Jimbo does against Alabama once a year. You know, like maybe it's not Alabama, but it's once or twice a year. Jimbo really gets his, you know, gets his juices flowing, gets a stretch in, hits a little treadmill before the game, starts thinking. So, yeah, I look up and down, and I honestly think that Max Johnson starting this game is a benefit for Texas A&M. And here's why. A guy like Wigman, I think, is a great player, not dumping on him, but what he is is a young player. And I think that you have to see yourself as a person who can beat Alabama. And he's, you know, he's had some wins. I'm not taking that away. I think about the 2021 LSU-Alabama game where Max Johnson was in there just taking shot after shot. And if you had had an offensive staff comprised of Hester and T-Bob Abair, they could have won that game. I mean, LSU's offensive staff was so trash in that game. And Max Johnson was out there just almost winning the game over and over and over and over again, despite the limitations of everyone around him. Max Johnson is a guy, no matter what you think of him, he is a gunslinger. He believes in his heart of hearts. He is a starter. That's why he didn't try to get out of Texas A&M. He didn't pout. He went to go play with his brother, and he stayed there. And I think he is the type of a veteran senior – or, like, not senior, but a – I guess technically he could be a senior by now. I don't know how that works anymore. Yeah, he's – he's a football sophomore, but he is a oh fourth-year guy. I know. This is what we talked about last week. Max Johnson, after this year, has two more years of eligibility left. So, okay, as a student, he's a senior, but as a football player, he's a sophomore. So, yeah. yeah. So he's been around long enough to see these games. He's been around. And, and like I said, like, I'm not jumping on Wigman, but I think a game like this where it's more about belief than it is ability. I mean, you talk about, you know, AM not having Anaya Smith. AM, like, they, have, they were on fumes last year, and they still made this a competitive game at Brian Denny Stadium with a staff that had Will Anderson that was used to having Bryce Young. Obviously, they had Jalen Milrow. But I, I look at up and down Bama's roster. I look at how they played. I look at what last year's Bama team did. And I just – I don't see how – like, whatever happens with Jimbo and Saban, I think we're at least able to say Jimbo can play him close. And the last time they played in this environment, Jimbo won. So I think at the end of the day, like, this is my last stop at the maybe Bama isn't that good train. If Bama wins this one, I'm going to go ahead and just start fearing for that LSU matchup. But I think that – Based on what these two teams have put on tape so far, A&M has shown to be a more complete team. They've shown to be a team funny enough with a better quarterback. They've shown to be a team with a better offensive coordinator. And the defense in Alabama has been great. But, I mean, unless you're LSU, second half Lane Kiffin is just not going to win football games. So, yeah, I, I, I like A&M here. There is a possibility. And I'm not saying it's one that I'm predicting because obviously I'm on record already saying that I think LSU is going to beat Mizzou. I'm on record saying that I think Bama is going to win a thriller against a and But – there is a not so crazy possibility that by the time AM fans lay their heads down on pillow Saturday night, they could be in a spot where they will be in the best position that they have ever been in the SEC. Here's what I mean by that. If they are 3-0 and in this conference with the win against Bama and LSU already has multiple losses, that's not just in the driver's seat. You're controlling this thing. That mm-hmm. is, you don't have a crossover against Georgia. You obviously still have a really difficult matchup coming up against Tennessee. It's by no means a given that AM is going to um, get out of conference play without multiple losses. They could still have an 8-4, and 9-3 type season. That's not crazy. But you will be in the best position that you have been since joining this conference to win this conference. 
That's what yeah. I mean by that. Because you can go back, obviously, 2012. You know, you're winning, you got a guy winning a Heisman Trophy. You've got your best finish in the AP poll since 1939. I get all those things. I get it. But if you are in a spot where you can be three and zero with the Bama win in your back pocket heading into the meat of this schedule, that is a place that A and M fans have not known. And it is possible. I wouldn't say it's likely. But it is at least on the table, and that's how weird things can get this weekend. Yeah, I just I again, Miami game was bad. Okay, I made fun of it more than anyone. I understand. I don't think Tyler Van Dyke is walking through that door. <laughs> like, I think He's that not. you have a guy. I think that that style of quarterback is not the one that Alabama has. And I, yeah, I, I think that if you know, if you have these freaks on the D line, if you have these guys that have been able to get pressure. That's like with no row pressure and getting him off schedule is the way to beat him. And you saw it last year. You've seen it with your own eyes. This Texas A&M defense has seen this quarterback struggle against them in a game that, I mean, they got down there and were just like forcing the ball to um, Evan Stewart and at a time that he wasn't ready. Now these guys that played in that game that are still here feel older. Not, not feel, that's the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. They are older factually, but they, they feel like they aren't these young, they're not a three and three lost team. They're a team that's kind of on one page. They've gotten their biggest question, which is offensive coordinator figured out. So, and like I said, Bama has moved from Bill O'Brien, Bryce Young, not in this game, Will Anderson to, we're still not exactly sure. We know they can beat Mississippi state, which again, you know, um, I dug my key into the side. Like that's how long it's been. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested by this one. And I think that, like I said, it'll be way nicer to Bama if A&M doesn't win. But I, I, I think there's a statement one that they've been looking for, for since Jimbo got there. I'm just here for more Will pulling out Carrie Underwood. Just that's probably that's probably also her last good song. So um, yeah, shout wow. out to you for bringing that up. Sorry, I just think she's vastly overrated. I think she's so overrated. There, there are pull out the list of great Carrie Underwood songs since 2012. Okay, yeah. like, and I realize that song was before that, but th- that yeah. list is not existed. She's still searching for those hits. Whatever, very biased. Arkansas, Ole Miss. Ole Miss is an 11 and a half point favorite. The over under that I have is 300 rushing yards per team. Take the under. Well, take the under. Uh, <laughs> that is the mark that both of these teams hit in this matchup. Each of the last two seasons. Jeez. Think about that. And you know what? If you were just looking at this on paper and you'd say, wait a minute, why can't that happen? We still have Quinshaw Judkins. We have rocket Sanders playing in this football game. This is good. 300 rushing yards. That, that can happen again. Uh, no, I don't think it can. I, I, I just don't. I, I don't have any faith that Rocket is about to take off behind that just woeful Arkansas offensive line. Um, Judkins had a breakout game against LSU. That Arkansas run defense has actually been fine. They, they've actually been fine. They're top third in FBS in both efficiency and yards per game. Sadly, I, I feel like both of these running backs – that I love when they are right. And when they are in good situations, I think they might be secondary options or at the very least, they're going to be used more as pass catchers out of the backfield, because I don't think either of these teams feel great about their offensive line. Maybe Ole Miss turned the corner. Maybe that was just LSU being super bad defensively. Maybe it was both. I don't know. We'll play the results. That's, that's what we do. Whatever the case, I would be stunned if one of these teams surpassed 300 rushing yards again. I have so little faith in Arkansas right now, just overall, especially after they, they were pretty banged up too 
uh, within that game against AM. Dwight McLaughlin, who's having a really nice season, he had the pick six on that play to start off the second half. He had a concussion. Nudie. Yeah. Uh, really, that's really what, nice. That's his play. nickname. I didn't want to shock you there. But yeah, Nudie McLaughlin, he's awesome. Yeah. It, it is a great nickname. I don't know how one obtains. We have, we have some prime nicknames in the SEC. Prime yep. even in this game with Rocket as well. Um, he might not be available. John Morgan, the Pitt t- defensive line transfer, he had that very scary neck injury on Saturday. Uh, Pittman said there's a chance he could play, uh, which I, I don't know that they're going to want to bring him out there to do that, but whatever the case. Luke Haas, who's pretty much been the second best tight end in the SEC outside of Brock Bowers to this start. That guy. He, yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's out for the season, unfortunately. It's just been one of those years. It has been one of those years for Arkansas. And the offensive line, they are still moving things around. So even against that Ole Miss defense that was basura last week, very much basura, I can't say that it, it's a get-right game for the, for the Arkansas offense. I, I just can't. I am going into this one saying, oh, KJ, my sweet prince, you have no help. You have no help whatsoever. Maybe he goes into full me-against-the-world mode like he did when he took off from the five-yard line on that run that he had two years ago in this game against Ole Miss. And I thought to myself, now that's a guy. That's a guy I can go to bat for. And I fell in love with KJ over the course of an afternoon. Maybe, maybe he's got a little bit of that left in the tank. But I I just, I don't know. I I worry about him, that Ole Miss defense. They can get into the backfield. I'm going to go Ole Miss to win this by three scores. No faith in Arkansas. None. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Arkansas obviously coming off of three straight L's. Um, and honestly, two of them felt very winnable, uh, BYU and LSU. Um, and I think that at some point, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, you got Ole Miss and then you got Alabama. Um, and so I think that, you know, this is going to be a pretty rough uh, ske- part of their schedule as much as I would hope hope root for Sam Pittman to pull out of this one as much as I love him and, and the things he's done at Arkansas. I just think that they're starting to get into that tumult or that, that tedious position where it's like, okay, we might start to lose our season here. Our guy's going to be hitting hard. Our guy's going to be totally like bought in and, and locked in because they need to be to beat Ole Miss. And like, I think that's a really good note about the running backs. I think both of them have looked, um, uh, have looked kind of banged up. And like, like I said, as great as, um, Judkins played against LSU. He wasn't the running back that I was the most scared of. I think that they have a nice little stable, though, so it's not like it matters because they have both of them. Um, so point being, I, I think that, you know, like I said, it's it's exactly what you said last podcast. It's I kind of cringe watching Arkansas because we want better for KJ. We want better for Rocket. No idea what's going on with that offensive line to this day. They haven't fixed it. And so, yeah, I just think that, you know, these are two teams kind of two, like you said, similar teams often that in this game is always a very fun up and down, get up and down the field. It just feels like they're going a completely opposite direction. So it's hard for me to do anything with the Columbus here. Yeah. And, you know, in the preseason, I said, I thought Arkansas would win this game. I thought Arkansas would show up desperate because I had them losing the two previous games. I had them winning against BYU, but I thought they would show up desperate. Ole Miss riding high after the LSU game that I had also in the preseason um, I, I just can't get there. I, I think if they were going to show up desperate, you would have seen it last week. They they yep. still don't know what their offensive line rotation is going to be. I, I mean, we're at week six. We're at week six. It's it's not just, oh, you can't say like, oh, yeah, this injury, that injury, whatever. If that happens and you've got a revolving door on the offensive line and you're the team that just – you you're it's, it's makeshift all the time like 2018 LSU was where they had like seven different offensive lines to start off the year. This isn't that. This is, we're not good. 
We're not good yeah. at spots that we need to be good, and we're getting our quarterback killed. And it just it, it sucks to see. And I know I know I sound like I'm I'm just more so sad for Arkansas than I am like happy that Ole Miss has a favorable matchup. But I just I just love KJ and hate seeing him and Rocket in this spot. Just feels like they are being absolutely wasted. And Arkansas is going to need to show up very very desperate. That line at eleven and a half that's telling. That that tells you where exactly. We think that this Arkansas program is at right now, and I just don't think that they're really built to be able to hang with Ole Miss. Yeah, and the thing too that's like so unfortunate is it's like okay, it's like if you have bad DB play at an Alabama or a Georgia, it's like well, your head coaches are like DB whisperers, so that's pretty much a sign of a problem. It's like with Arkansas, it's like you had one of, if not the best, offensive line coach in the country that you hired as your head coach, and your offensive line is trash, and like that's a huge problem as an AD if you're Hunter Urchak, because it's like okay, you could talk about how he needs good coordinators to be successful, but his thing that he's a value. I don't like if you're the head coach and you're that you have that background, you're evaluating the O line. You're making O-line starting decisions. Like, I know he has an O-line coach, um, but remember, LSU took Brad Davis as well several years ago. So it's not – at this point in your season, it's up to him to get that group right. And they just keep looking terrible. It's just, That's what I'm saying. That's the worst part because it's like if they had a strong offensive line, if they were able to run the ball and they were still losing, it would be like, okay, well, let's just like switch out a couple of pieces we can build from here. They are building on Swamp right now. So I, as much as I – like I said, as much as I hope that they play well, turn this thing around, it just feels like it's about to – the worst is yet to come to this Arkansas team, unfortunately. It hurts the approval rating that much more. You know, if, if a Mike Leach mm-hmm. coach team had a bad group of linebackers, we would say, all right, well, you know, we we know that Mike Leach isn't exactly the most involved guy on the defensive side of the ball. He can hire a new defensive right. coordinator, get that figured out. It, it it falls more so on a defensive coordinator who has total autonomy on that side of the ball. Sam Pittman having this bad of an offensive line, I think he would even be the first to admit it comes back to him and they've got to get it cleaned mm-hmm. up or else this season can go very much downhill in a hurry, just in case it already hasn't. Kentucky, Georgia. Georgia's a 14-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under I have for this one, Will, is seven points for Kentucky's largest lead of the night. Okay. It would. I'll get to the significance of that, but it, it would be obviously like the ultimate here we go again if Georgia started off in a 10 to nothing deficit, right? That's... So we've seen right. play out so far with double-digit deficits in the first half in each of these first two SEC games. It would also mark Kentucky's first lead of any kind against Georgia since it led 3 to nothing at the 320 mark of the first quarter in the 2017 matchup. Mm-hmm. That's, that's crazy. The last time that Kentucky had a touchdown lead on Georgia at any point in a football game, the 508 mark of the third quarter of the 2016 game, which Georgia won on a last second field goal from Rodrigo. Uh, yeah, so Kentucky fans know this. Basically, Georgia has kept Kentucky at an arm's length since year one of the Kirby Smart era. That's been very obvious. 2009 was the last time that Kentucky beat Georgia. That's 14 years. As my guy Perry pointed out, our guy Perry. You've now been to a football game with Perry. He is our oh, yeah. guy. Yes, Perry is our guy. Yeah, yeah. He pointed this out, which I I didn't realize this. I had to look this up because I was like, wait, that's 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 true, and he's right. That 2009 game that Kentucky beat Georgia. It was a night game, Sanford Stadium. That was the last time that Georgia lost a night game at home. Fourteen years. That is nuts. Think about that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 14 years since Georgia has lost a night game at home. Yeah. All right. 
But, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a yeah. OU and apology was not familiar with your game. If you are doing that, yeah, that's it. Athens as a as a home night environment. Holy, holy crap! Yeah, when Georgia fans are frustrated at the the lack of night games, it's because of stuff like that. Probably they feel invincible at night. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I get it. Kind of hard to argue with that. A lot should be made about Georgia's run defense. It, it should. It, it would be weird if we just brushed off how human Georgia looked against. Auburn and the fact that they face Ray Davis, who obviously is on the heels of the single best rushing performance of any player in America this year. All that is worth breaking down. I fully acknowledge that. If Georgia cannot figure out how to get off blocks, Kentucky can make this a 60 minute game. Ray Davis can have a lot more success. I I get all that. My guy, Liam Cohen, he is not going to be afraid to feed Ray Davis. I know he got a lot of work last week, but they will empty the tank with Ray Davis because, Hey, Give the ball to your best player, your most reliable player, especially when that passing game has been, uh, I think, a little bit disappointing at least. I I think that that would make a lot of sense. I get all those things. But then I think about the Georgia defensive staff with Kirby, Muschamp, Glenn Schumann, with the vastly underrated Trey Scott coaching up that defensive line. I think those adjustments are coming. I do. Mm -hmm. I think this entire week, is spent focusing on gap discipline, on eye discipline, on getting downhill, and making sure that whatever that was against Auburn, making sure that does not happen again. Even if it's another slow start offensively for Georgia against a really good Kentucky defense led by Brad White and Mark Stoops that we probably need to be talking about more. To me, I think we're going to watch the first half, and the takeaway is going to be, okay, Georgia has made those defensive adjustments. They've, they've figured things out in, in the ground game. And I think where that pays off is that maybe it puts Kentucky into some of these third and 10, third and 11 type situations with Devin Leary. And Kentucky really hasn't faced a team who could make them pay for those mistakes in the passing game, the overthrows, the, the plays where you're just like, ah, oh, man, like that's a, a bobble by the receiver. Oh, that's that's a, a play that you just got to be able to make in that spot to be able to move the sticks. Georgia can make them pay for those mistakes. They can. Oklahoma is the only power five team with more interceptions than Georgia, who has eight on the season. I think a couple of short fields gets the Georgia offense going, even if it isn't great, even if this isn't 500 yards of offense and 42 points. I don't think it's going to be that. Kentucky's defense is too good for that. But once again, it's the third quarter where Carson Beck does his absolute best, and he starts to be able to figure some things out. He's got a quarterback rating of 200 in the third quarter this year. You will never, never guess the quarterback who has the best quarterback rating in the third quarter this year in the entire country. Guess who it is? Graham Merch. No, it's a good guess. I like where your head's at. I like where your head's at. Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. I don't know what Mertz is in that ranking. Um, any other guesses? Um, I mean, I would guess Jaden, but I'm sure it's not him because it's surprising. Um, yeah, who is it? Jalen Milrow. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. They've had some strong second halves. Yeah. I think he's only got like 18 pass attempts in the third quarter this year. So it's a little bit low. If you want to include quarterbacks with at least 40 third quarter pass attempts, Carson Beck is number one in quarterback rating in the third quarter. So take that for what it is. He's been really good. He's actually gotten better every quarterback or or every, um, every quarter in terms of quarterback rating. If you look at it quarter by quarter, that breakdown uh, CFB stats has great stuff like that. Love to be able to dig into that, but yeah, that, that makes sense. He has gotten into the flow of the game a little bit more. Ah, I think this feels like a 28 to 10 type game, 28 to 10. Georgia wins this game. 
it's kind of funny that odds makers are basically saying, yeah, we know it's Georgia, but let's just make the spread 14 and a half. <laughs> let's just do that. Well, we don't, we don't really know this team. Does anybody know this team particularly well? I don't know. I, I think the hope from Kentucky, at least from Kentucky fans, Kentucky players, coaches, they're, they're not going to say this, but I think fans hope that this just stays close. And this is one of those, anything can happen 14 to 14 dead heats going into the fourth quarter that this might sound weird, but Kentucky could win this game. And I, I, I still think I would say, yeah, I don't know. I think there are multiple opportunities where Kentucky is going to stumble in the second half of that schedule. I realize if you beat Georgia, you could beat anyone, especially right. in Athens, but I still would probably look at this and go, ah, I don't know. Georgia's probably still the favorite to win the East, even if they lose this game, which I don't think will happen, but that's just kind of how the schedule breaks down for Georgia. So yeah, I do think Georgia though wins this game and answers some of those questions more, more so on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, um, I, I'm with you in that I think Georgia will win. Um, you know, it's exactly what you said about Mizzou in a way. It's like, I want to think about a way that Kentucky wins this game. And what it looks like is, and you perfectly keyed on this, is the passing offense just being that little bit of out of sync. You know, we like, I felt like I was harping on it after the preview or after the wrap up pod on Sunday, but it's like, you know, you beat Florida. That's old news at this point. If you're Kentucky, that's not a big deal. You've whooped them several, you know. You now own that rivalry. Congratulations. Now you're playing with the big dogs. Literally, you're playing with Georgia in Sanford Stadium. So what that means is you now have to hold yourself to that standard. Like it's not Kentucky is is happy to be a team that can, you know, beat Florida, can beat Tennessee, can kind of stay right there. But when and if they can, you know, break through, um, you know, this feels to be a decently good shot. But we felt that before. Now, what I was going to say here is that it's about the passing game. Okay, so when you talk about Kirby's, and Muschamp and Schulman and all those those lads, all of their DBs, right? They have the type of DBs. What was the quote about tip balls? Tips and overthrows. Got to get those. That's a that's yep. a Mel Tucker quote, so it's a little bit problematic. But that was what was said after the SEC championship last year. Christopher Smith had that one in the holster ready to go. Yep. And so that's the thing. Like They're taught to capitalize on tips, drops, things like that. And... You got Barry Brown out there. I mean, I hope he's recovered after like taking the big hit last week and everything, but that dude was a liability. And if those balls went straight up in the air against Georgia, they're not going to fall harmlessly against the ground. So I feel like, you know, for the Georgia defense, this is a dream matchup to play as a DB because you have that little bit of off schedule. You have that little bit of maybe the ball has a little bit of zip on it. Maybe it's not hitting the guys just right on the road. Um, now, that being said, you know, if the Kentucky offensive line can continue playing well, maybe it was a little bit too high on them after last week. But like I said, it's one of those like we can't, you know, we have to have a, what's it called? A consistent message. So it can't be Florida has this amazing defense and then Kentucky runs them over and, but that doesn't matter. I think that maybe Florida was a little bit fraudulent. I think that, I think that's probably what it was. Honestly, I think that Florida was a little bit fraudulent, but that being said, Kentucky's offensive line has come together. And I think that if they're able to establish the ground game, something they've never been able to do in this game. I mean, something that is just Kentucky comes into the game thinking we're going to play smash mouth football. And George is like, we're going to play smash mouth football with five stars. How's this going to go for you, bud? Um, and so maybe this is the chance that where there is no Jalen Carter. There is no Jordan Davis. There is no like dude. Finally, they can get the run game going. Um, the only thing that you worry about as a Georgia fan, and I've spoken on this a little bit, is just, man, their kicking game is not reliable. Uh, they have the worst field goal percentage in the SEC. And while they only have nine attempts, 
Um, they got six makes. Uh, so at the end of the day, I understand, yeah, it's early in the season. Yeah, some teams, you know, miss could have gone either way. But at the same time, you know, you don't feel like one thing about Georgia consistently that's kept them with this like 10 win floor over the last like 20 years is that they don't really have these like special teams mishaps. They have that part of the game pretty well cinched up. And in games that are pick them, usually those things start to help you a lot. So all I'm saying is that if you're Georgia, you don't want to be in a dogfight with Mark Stoops. Nobody wants to be in a dogfight with Mark Stoops. So you want to put them away. You want to get that going early. If Georgia's unable to get going early, this could be a back and forth game. And, and like you said, the third quarter is so pivotal because of that, because Georgia has shown even if they slow down early, they can come back in the third quarter. But all I'm saying is if you're Georgia, just like Clemson, you don't want this one to come down to a field goal. Tips and overthrows, got to get those. It also applies to Kentucky in this game. It does. Mm-hmm. Because Carson Beck is facing – in my opinion, the best defense he's seen so far. Now, oh, yeah. it's different because last week against Auburn, an Auburn defense that played really well, um, struggled down the stretch, obviously, to contain Brock Bowers. I won't fault him too much for that. But this is a Kentucky defense that has been lights out, and they've been opportunistic mm-hmm. as well. So if you're Kentucky, I don't think you're winning this game without a non-offensive touchdown. I, I think that is very much part like if you're if you're one of those people you're you're parlaying a bunch of things or something like that just throw a Kentucky non-offensive touchdown in there if you're if you're on that side of the betting coin because I think they would need a, a Barry and Brown return touchdown I think they would need a pick six a scoop and score something like that because there are there could be those opportunities right I think that there is a world in which Kentucky's front actually shows up looking pretty good. Like Walker, Walker's yep. best defensive player up front on the defensive line, like on either side of the ball. Okay. Deion Walker has been a wrecking crew. And there, there are probably a lot of Kentucky fans hoping, hey, maybe Carson Beck looks like a guy who's on his heels early on. Maybe we can get one or two on him. Maybe this turns into a, a game where he has multiple turnovers and all of a sudden the good mojo that you were feeling coming off of last week's finish at Auburn is all of a sudden gone against this disciplined Kentucky defense. Maybe that is on the table. I think that's the only way Kentucky wins this game. I do. I don't think that yep. this turns into like a 35-28 type game or anything like that. I would bet that this ends up being a little bit more low scoring, and I'm not going to ask, what's wrong with the Georgia offense if they don't put up 35 points? We're past that. I would be, alternatively, I would be super impressed if they put up 35 points against this Kentucky defense. I'd be saying, hey, yep. Maybe this Georgia offense is really figuring some things out because I, I I do not take that task lightly if I am Georgia, if I'm Carson Beck, Mike Bobo. But I do think this ends up being a convincing Georgia win. Kentucky wins this one, though. Man, the masses, the masses would just be saying the SEC is done. Done. We don't get don't to do what the Big Ten says, and, and now we're deep. Um, but let me ask you this, though, because this seems to be counting everyone they've played and going forward. The defense that – trying to think of how to say this. I think they have the best shot to contain Brock Bowers. I don't think anyone will contain Brock Bowers. But I think that if you look up and down their schedule, they at least have – at least the mentality. They have the defensive coordinator. Maybe they have – nobody has the personnel. But predict Brock Bowers' stat line this one. <sighs> See, here's the thing. If these guys don't stop them, ain't nobody stopping them. Is my point. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to compare that because of past matchups and to use yeah. that as, oh, well, Kentucky's actually defended the tight end pretty well. Brock Bowers isn't a tight end. He, he is a oh, football no, player. I'm just talking about their defense as a whole. No, no, no. no. Right, I'm just right, talking right. about their defense. Like, they at least have like some semblance of like pride in defense in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
from from that standpoint, maybe. But at the same time, I'll say that Brock is just shy, just shy of the century mark. He has one of those seven catch, ninety yards, and a touchdown type days where mm-hmm. it's just nothing, nothing quite on the level of last week. But still, yeah. a game in which reminded this guy is pretty freaking good. And even against an elite defense, he's still going to find a way to get his. You can throw to him in coverage. You can throw to him in space. He's going to find a way to hurt you. And I think that ends up being probably more so like Kentucky is trying to make other guys beat him. And that's a really hard thing to do. I just, yep. I don't know. And that's, that's a breakout cool. game for, this could be a breakout game for Lad too. Don't, don't lose sight mm-hmm. of that. I'm interested to yep. see if like getting his feet under him against Auburn the way that he did, if he comes back and he's like, all right, I, I kind of saw what it looked like. And this ends up being more of a Lad game than a Brock game. That would not surprise me. That, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and, and I think, too, it's like I said, you know, early in the season against South Carolina, it's like Bobo is using Brock Bowers like J-Rome. Like he's just using like a standard tight end. Against Auburn, it seems like he actually figured out how to use Brock Bowers effectively. It seemed like he was moving him around. It seemed like he was actually using him as that little bit of a receiving tight end versus just in line. You got to get your – got to put your hat on a hat before we throw you the ball. Like So I think that actually might be – the you know, we always talk about – it's better to learn lessons and wins than losses. That could have been the lesson that Mike Bobo learned against Auburn that he can take it in Kentucky. Aaron Murray had a great breakdown of Brock Bowers against cover two and, and the the route tree that, that Bobo dialed up. But again, I'll, I'll praise Bobo for what he did in the second half of that game. Some of the scheming 100%. that they were doing with Bowers, it, it was great. It was the type of stuff that you hoped you would see after spending a year with Todd Munkin. Hope to see more of that if you are a Georgia fan. Hope we get a good one on Saturday night. That's That'd be great. Hey, Georgia fans, sorry. Your your team is in the position now where people like seeing it on the ropes. That's reality for you moving forward. The rest of us, we want to see competitive football and not games that are over at the end of the first quarter. Yep. Lock of the week. I thought I had it, Will. I thought I had it. I thought I was so smart to run it back with Duke. I, I did say if Notre Dame won that I thought it would be a thriller. That game was a thriller. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. for the sake of lock of the week, Duke did not cover plus five and a half. Just missed that. A reminder that sports are fleeting. Not to get too deep here, but in five minutes, Duke goes from thinking it's about to be undefeated heading into October after beating Notre Dame. You already have the Clemson win in your back pocket. College game day's in the house. You go from thinking, hey, we're about to do this. And then you realize you're about to lose. And oh, by the way, you lose your starting quarterback, Riley Leonard. Very gruesome injury. <sighs> Oh, just awful, Gross, awful yeah. stuff. Very classy by Sam Hartman to kind of wait afterwards, yeah. dap him up. Um, cool moment for those guys. But but hated that for that kid. Hated that for my guy, Mike Calco. So nonetheless, lock of the week, two and three on the season. We're getting back to 500 this week. We are. Oklahoma, six and a half point underdog. Texas, Red River rivalry. Mouthful. Red River rivalry. Red River shootout, not a mouthful. Whatever. This game should be awesome. It should be so fun. And if you're one of those people right now who is saying Texas and Oklahoma aren't going to know what hit them when they come into the SEC, watch this game. <laughs> those people are gone. Yeah, nobody's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, ho- I hope you watch this game. I was trying to do like a power ranking of where those two would be in the SEC this year. If, you, if you're just looking at it right now, you're not getting past four. You're not. They, they would both be top four teams in the SEC. Like pretty I, I say that without a doubt. Even if you want to just put Texas at two and only Oklahoma at four, I still would would say that that's probably more so the case. Um, yeah. But o- Oklahoma has quietly been one of the most complete teams in the country. Six and a half yeah. point underdog in this game. 
They're the only team in the country that is top five in both scoring offense and scoring defense. But, you know, it's like when you have a weak non-conference slate, voters kind of take that into account. Obviously, a team that if they win this one, it'll be probably worth more than the the first month of the season combined. That's the way that this works. Of course. This is, this is what I thought I was signing up for last year, though, with Oklahoma. A Jeff Levy offense that's scoring 47 points per game and a Brent Venables defense that's letting up 11 points per game. Yep. Danny Stutzman, a guy that's from my neck of the woods down here in Orlando. Shout out Windermere Prep, I think he went to. Yeah, Windermere Prep, I want to say. He's having an All-American season at the linebacker position in the middle of that OU defense. They are seventh in America in opposing quarterback rating. This is not the defense that Quinn Ewers lit up last year. They have overhauled yep. it. They have made those adjustments. I think we get a thriller. And while I'm not willing to say that Oklahoma wins this outright, I think they cover six and a half. I think they cover plus six and a half. It's fun though, that this game in the final year of the big 12 is getting this type of billing. Maybe not so fun for the big 12. Big 12 fans are probably like, <laughs> screw these teams. If these teams are playing in a rematch in the big 12 championship, that would suck for, for all the those, rating is going to be like this huge high watermark between like two, like, you know, massively ranked expectations like Texas and Oklahoma. And the second best, <laughs> like the new big 12 game is going to be so far from that. Cause it's going to be an all time red river rivalry. It should be. I, I hope it will be. I hope we get a fun one. If you got two screens going, LSU Mizzou on one, Red River rivalry on the other. Two Big Easy. 12 football games. Wow. <laughs> Might feel like it. You're exactly right. Might feel like it. Uh, but yeah, that is that is my lock of the week. Oklahoma plus six and a half. You got LSU, Mizzou, Texas, and Oklahoma. And Oklahoma has far and away the best defense. What timeline are we living in? Seriously, what world is this? Texas, pretty good defense, too. Pretty good defense, too. Yeah, probably going to be a more low-scoring game in that one. Not so much a shootout, uh, unlike what we were what we were expecting to see in Columbia. All right, let's kick it to Cole, then Javon. Uh, great stuff from a couple of guys who obviously know a thing or two about playing in the trenches in this conference. So here's Cole, then Javon. Not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the hardest working analyst in college football, Cole Kubelik. Cole, it amazes me that with all you have going on in your life, which is calling games on Saturday night for SEC Network, McElroy and Kubelik every weekday morning, Cube Show, Father of Three, you're like, you know what? Let me just let me throw another thing onto my plate. Let me just add, read, and react. New SEC Network show with Rowan Harper. Let me, let me just add that onto my plate. How how has sleep been for you? Because I got to imagine, like your your Saturday through Tuesday stretch is just a gauntlet unlike any other. Um, sleep is pretty good. It's just whenever I can actually get it. Um, that's the hard part. The it's not hard falling asleep. It's it's hard being able to have time to go to sleep. So, um, stay tuned. Next two weeks might even be more fun. So we'll, uh, we'll just keep, we're just going to keep adding until literally we can't add any more. So I love it, man. It's, um, thankfully I have a wife that's very understanding my kids, the ones that, that kind of get it. They understand. Uh, I did have the hardest departure I've ever had last week. Um, because they were all three here when I left, which is not usually the case. And I just, I completely ran the gauntlet. My, my eight-year-old, she's, you know, she's full guilt trip. You know, I love you. Please don't leave, but not, you know, not, not bad about it. Six-year-old, big hug. Love you. See ya. Back to whatever he was doing before. And my three-year-old literally gets mad at me, like loses his temper, like kicks me, tries to hit me, but wants me to hold him and hug me at the same time. Like 
he I, he just doesn't know what he's thinking. But like he he is infuriated when he finds out I'm leaving. Like he he can't handle it. So it's um, thankfully she can manage it. She has a harder job than I do, but I love it. It's all it's not work. It's just it does consume time, but it's all fun, man. I I would do it all as much as humanly possible. It's just um, it's I, I love being around it and I love doing it. I've noticed you've started condensing your film breakdown sessions into in-game film breakdown, which is yeah. just next level stuff to have that, to have a screen off to the side in the middle of the game that you are on the call for sitting there breaking down film. I don't know <laughs> if a sideline analyst has ever done that for us. One thing to be doing that in the booth and to be, you know, drawing up on a screen, but to do it the way that you have, I think you're one of one. Well, I appreciate it. I have a, uh, Bill Palladino is our producer. He does a great job. He, um, he helped kind of put that together. Uh, it was actually Tom's idea to kind of co-promote it with read and react. And, you know, Jordan kind of helps if anything needs to be drawn on it, but it's, I, I got a good crew. Those guys understand that, uh, sometimes I see some things that maybe other people don't. And we try to, we try to give you a little something that maybe you missed from the first half or early in the game and, and talk about why it's going to be important later. So it's, it's pretty cool that they let me do it first and foremost. So it's, it's fun. I, I got a lot of O-line stuff that I want to get to with you. I've had, I feel like a lot of opinions that, that I personally have had watching stuff, but you're, you're kind of the voice of reason when it comes to this, because you understand it obviously at a different level. This is going to sound really general, but I kind of just want you to take it whatever direction that you want. I, I was trying to think of how many SEC teams truly feel good about their offensive lines this year. Like maybe Tennessee, Georgia, sometimes Mizzou, Kentucky last week, but like they just had their best game, of course, but I don't think it's been that consistent all year. Do you think SEC O-line play as a whole is down or do you think that's just a byproduct of maybe some higher expectations that haven't been met? No, it's down. Um, I think LSU probably feels good about their group. Uh, they, they've been pretty good. They've been pretty consistent this year. I think where Tennessee is now, now that they have – Cooper Mays back and that Mincy has figured out how to be the right tackle. If they can keep that, then I think they're going to feel good. I think Glenn Ellerby will feel really good about that group moving forward. They've had to kind of patchwork some things. Um, I think Kentucky now does. They, they've moved a couple guys around and Jeremy Flax probably had just had his best game in a Kentucky uniform at right tackle. Marquez Cox has been great. The newcomer from Northern Illinois at left tackle. They had to toy with the center thing through fall camp and spring. And then in the season, I think they got that figured out. Um, I think some teams are getting there. Uh, Alabama, this was what we thought we were going to get all year this past week. And I think they're getting close. I think A&M's getting close. Um, Ole Miss, their group looked a little better last week. But I, I think they probably still have some things they'd like to iron out. Florida, Florida has looked pretty good at times, but then other times they, they haven't looked good. So I'm sitting here looking at all the teams right now trying to think. I'm with you on Missouri. Missouri's been a, an interesting group to watch this year. They will be completely dominant, and then they will just completely fall apart. It's um, Thankfully for them, Brady Cook has been very consistent, and the running backs have been very consistent, and the receivers, because that offensive line, it's not series to series half-to-half, quarter-to-quarter. I mean, it is play-to-play. Play. You don't know what you're going to get. So it looks real good sometimes. Um, you know, Golden Hog Award went to their right tackle this past week on Read and React, one of our best blocks we've had all, all year. But, you know, then you turn a guy free. And so sometimes with the stretch, the way they run it really flat, you're going to have guys coming through and there's going to be some run-through. But it's not one that's been super consistent. I will say I think – South Carolina is getting closer. Now they're playing two true freshmen, so it's not—it's never going to be great. Like this year, it's—it's going to take some time. But 
Yeah, I, w- I would say top to bottom, it, it's down because some of the teams that we expect to be really good are just not there yet. Okay, I, I can't pretend that we, we spend a ton of time digging into the Mizzou offensive line, but but I have noticed this. And with LSU you know, on the schedule this weekend, Harold Perkins coming up, some of the guys it, that they have to protect, it's a very relevant discussion. The PFF grades, which I know you are just a massive fan of, you praise them whenever you can. Um, and what fans are seeing from the Mizzou offensive line they they are drastically different. I mean, like the one of the biggest discrepancies I, I can remember. Can the Mizzou pass? Can, can they defend, or can they at least hold steady against that LSU front with Brady Cook dealing with the knee injury? Maybe mobility a bit limited. Um, a week ago I would have said no shot, but then I saw what Ole Miss just did, and I would say. They absolutely have a chance. Now there, you bring Pete Jenkins into the equation, who is the absolute goat when it comes to coaching defensive line, um, a better human being than he is a defensive line coach, by the way. Uh, maybe they inch him closer to the football and that solves some of the problems. I, I don't know. I, I didn't like a lot of what I saw. And this is where the show that I do on Mondays is really cool because um, I learn so much from Roman every week. And, and I, I think he would tell you the same about me just because we watch games in a very different manner. And he he is hell bent on it is scheme for LSU that is a problem. And I I pointed out a few things as to how guys are playing things and where guys are on certain things. And he's like, okay, he's like, yes, he's like, but collectively, I just think more of it is scheme than it is individuals not knowing what to do or being in the wrong place. Um, you look at some of the things that Ole Miss gave them problems with. Missouri's going to be able to hit you with some of that quarterback run. I understand he may be a little bit limited, but they have that. Uh, quick throws, run after catch, Missouri's going to have that. And LSU took really bad angles and did not get guys to the ground as often as they needed to. Um, and then if you're going to play lighter in the box, which they tried to do, uh, Ole Miss went right at them. And none of us thought they were capable of doing that this year. And they had success doing it. And they 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 formationed them into the boundary a little bit. You got a lot more pistol uh, they went under center a little bit, put the back right behind the quarterback, so they evened out the runs that they could have. I think that made it more difficult to defend. Um, but like some of the mesh concepts where LSU was running into each other, that's something that Missouri can give you. So, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned this year is Kirby Moore is a really good offensive coordinator, and he knows how to draw some things up. So I, I don't think it has to necessarily be, okay, can the, can the Missouri O-line dominate the LSU D-line? It's more collectively where I think they can give them problems. My dumb take, and you're the perfect person to speak on this because you see these games, you see these units at night and some of these atmospheres. It just looks like guys are firing off the ball up front in a different sort of way. My dumb take is that some of these bad offensive lines, or at least offensive lines that have been bad to start the year, they have great performances at home at night. And like South Carolina against Mississippi State, Florida against Tennessee, or last weekend with Ole Miss against LSU – scrutinize offensive lines that have appeared to have figured things out, but we're kind of like, well, you know what? Does it look like that the rest of the year? Do you feel like those are kind of outlier performances? And is it tough sometimes when you see something up close and you see a unit in front of you that's looks like it's improving a lot, but then you're like, all right, remember the environment and remember the circumstances around this. Yeah. I would offer you up um, Alabama against middle Tennessee uh, at home at night and and one that, that didn't really work out that well. Um, I, I think that there is absolutely something to be said about momentum. There's something to be said about feeding off of a crowd and, and that directing the game. 
And a lot of offensive lines do play better when the game is going their way because I think the other external factors get into the heads of the defensive linemen and it affects them more. Once you feel a weakness in a defensive line or defensive line men, your game automatically raises, usually collectively, but definitely as an individual. Once I knew I had a guy, my confidence shot through the roof. And that could be something he said, something I saw. Uh, I told this story on air in the Georgia Tech game uh, at Ole Miss a couple weeks ago. We had a ball boy that was just phenomenal. And he would come over during timeouts and at halftime, and he would tell us everything that they were saying on the other bench. He would be like, hey, Kublik, like this guy thinks he can get you, or they know the snap count, or they know we're going on two, or, you know, Mike Pasillo out at tackle, like they're going to try to get you a speed rush, or, hey, get ready for more games because they think Twist can win. They're going to do this. And we're sitting there. I mean, at the time, you're just like, all right, cool, you're in the middle of a game. Looking back on it now, like it was amazing information. And if he ever came to me and said something like, hey, so-and-so doesn't think he can hold the point of attack, I'm like, let's go. Like we are <laughs> – now we're in. We are going to dominate this dude. So – and then I knew other ways to get in, in guys' heads. Like I saw Richard Seymour in Knoxville this weekend. His son's getting recruited. And like I knew if I if I went low on him early, he wasn't going to like it. And I could get in his head. Right? He just – he he would – he would be, and I knew Marcus Stroud and I were kind of buddies. And so I would do it. He would start complaining. And then I would start talking to Marcus being like, you better tell your boy, I'm going to go, I'm going the whole game. Like it's going to be four quarters of it. Like get ready. Mainly because I couldn't block him standing up. So I might as well go low on him. Cause he was going to kick my ass if I tried to block him like a, like a normal D lineman. Um, but I think there's just things that you feed off of. And some of those were matchups. So let's take, you know, Tennessee, Florida. Offensive line didn't look good. Didn't have Cooper Mays. Um, you know, center they had in the game, not very stout, not very powerful. Well, Cam Jackson is, is like a boulder. He's got long arms. He's strong. He's got heavy hands. And against that offense, if you can dominate right there, you can play fewer numbers. It gives you the ability to play cover three, and you have more guys out on the perimeter to take away the quick throws. So that was almost really what happened there as opposed to just a bad offensive line performance. Now, you would think if you're playing four or five in the box, you should be able to run the ball. It really matter who you are. Um, so I, I do think some of it is is a little bit of an outlier, but I, I think there's some reality to it as in everything that goes into being an advantage of playing at home at night, it can absolutely aid you if you can kind of get things going your way. How is every SEC team not having a ball boy who just gets intel from the other side of the like, – how is that not a thing? I don't that- know if, and I, I don't think that was a conversation. I actually, I know the guy and I can ask him. I'm not going to put his name out there because I don't, <laughs> I know it'll probably happen to him, but um, I don't think it was being directed. Like, I just think he was a football savvy kid. Like, I just, I think he knew football and I think he knew what to listen for and he just paid attention to things. And so, I, I don't even remember when it started happening, but he just started coming over and he's like, Hey, they're going to blitz the A gaps. Like they think they can get home there, or they know you guys are going slide protection in this look, and they're they're not going to do this or whatever. And I mean, I'd hear him saying stuff to the quarterbacks, like, "Hey, they're going they're going cover two, so watch out for this and this." I'm like, at the time, you're like, "All right, thanks, man," but like, I got enough on my plate. I'm not really worried about it. But you did absorb the information. But it was it was pretty cool looking back on it now, thinking like how valuable that was, because we got it from the old Miss kid that was you know, pulled the player off when he's about to get in a fight and he's pushing him back on the field. So that's what got the conversation going. And I just started thinking like, man, we had a couple guys that were, I mean, damn 007 agents over there, like getting us all kind of good information. It was, it was great. 
got to get those guys a steak or something, man. That is, uh, that's, that's rare to have. Um, okay. I wanted to, to ask you about something. I'm sure you've had to bring this up a lot on one of your several shows, Sam Pittman having an offensive line. That's this bad. How stunning is that? It's always going to be surprising because I know the emphasis that he is going to place on it. And, and, and I know that, He's going to be down there working with those guys, and he's going to spend time with them. And 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 also, Cody's a really good offensive line coach. So it's not just Sam; it's it's kind of just in general. And that's a place where I think just inherently they've taken a lot of pride in that position. I mean, you can go back to you know Burlesworth when I was playing, or you can go back to um, you know some of the guys there when, of course, when Brett was there. And some of the things that they that they were doing, and then obviously Sam comes in like there. There's, I mean, even when Petrino was there, they had good offensive lines. So I, I just think that it's, I mean, hell, they're the Hogs. Like it's, it just kind of works. So it, it is surprising. I knew they would have some struggles because you, you know you're taking a guy that was a really good guard, you're moving him down to center, and I think Connor, everybody just thinks that's going to work, and it's just going to be magic, and it's it might hell, it might even be better because this guy was such a good guard, he'll just be a better center. Center is a little more cerebral. Like you can't just like we I've talked to Sam about it at different points in time. And it's like sometimes a glass eater just needs to eat glass. Like he doesn't need to change his diet and start talking about things and directing traffic and do like you stay out there, you eat glass and kick ass and like do your thing. And and that's that's they're just better at that. Um, and sometimes that's the mechanics of the snap. Sometimes that has to do with verbalization. Some guys, they get in their stance and like all they want to do is push people around and they, their brain doesn't allow them to say, okay, this, 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 like 52 is the mic. We're going to go ace block here. Like you two need to combo that back up to the backside backer and protection. Who's hot to the outside. Like who needs to fan who doesn't like it's, they just don't work that way. So I, when you're moving guys around, I always wonder what it's going to be like. And then they were going to be young, but talented at tackle. So you didn't really know how that was going to be. Uh, and it's a new offense. So keep in mind, it's still, even though they have the same offensive line coach, they're being asked to do some things that they haven't done in the past. So anything that's new, like I'm a sucker for for new things. I think new is nice. Like anytime I go look at a house with my wife or whatever, she's like, oh, the, the bones are so good. I'm just like, this thing's old. This is trash. You know, like you take me in a new house. I'm like, whoo, this is, I like this. You know, like this is great. I can't see it that way. And everybody always thinks that new is just going to be nicer and going to be better. And it just doesn't work that way. So continuity is hard. Continuity is harder right now than ever before in college football. I've talked to more coaches, Connor, this year in our meetings that have said either a position group, a side of the ball, or their entire team, we don't know what we are. I don't know what I have. I, I, I don't know what this group is yet. Like, And I'm talking two weeks ago we were getting that. So now we're about at the halfway point. Hopefully we don't hear that moving forward, but there's a lot of guys that just still, and keep in mind, like practice is being shaved back to the point that it doesn't mimic games very much anymore. There's very, very, very little time in practice that mimics what you get in the game. We talked about this in our game last week, like Cooper Mays made a big difference in that game for Tennessee. But there was a moment late in the game. I was down around the five-yard line. I'm standing there. We had an injury timeout, and I'm watching him. And he's got his hand. Like, you, as a lot, offensive linemen almost never put their hands on their hips. Because like, you don't want them to see your tired D-lineman can't help it because they got to chase the ball and everything. So they, they are legit worn out. He's got his hands on his hips, and his like, yeah. 
And you just saw like his chest compressing. And I was telling my producer, I was like, look, I was like, Cooper's gassed. I was like, get a shot of him right now. And sure enough, like he was worn out. And I, we tried Jordan and I both, not that Jordan knows, because quarterbacks don't do anything in a game. Like you never really get tired. But I tried to explain like game repetitions are so different. And it takes so long to get acclimated to that. I think you're seeing that process now carry over. It reminds me of Trey Smith a couple of years ago. Mm. Because, like, I've told people before, like, I would adopt Trey if legally somehow I, I could pull it off. But he was the best lineman in maybe in the country his freshman year. And then he obviously had the blood clot situation, didn't play. And when he came back, however they did the medication or whatever, he would go off it to play and then go back on it. And in practice, he wasn't allowed to hit. No contact. None. And we had him early, and he was struggling. Like I, I mean, he would admit it. He's like, I'm not myself. I'm not playing the way I need to. And then we had him again like week eight, and I'm watching the film, and it's like, this is the guy from two years ago. Like, this is him. And we sat down with him, and I said, honestly, is it fair to say that these games have basically been your practice, and that's why you're so much better now than before? And he's like, no doubt. He's like, I didn't hit anybody for six weeks. And he's like, the only time I hit people was on Saturday. So that I had to use that as practice reps. Also, as games, not that he treated it any different, but he's like, that was the only way. So I think a lot of this is just transfer portal, new guys in new places. I would love for somebody to do a deep dive as to what our legitimate turnover rate is in college football. And I'm not just talking about players. Players, coaches, staff, like everybody. It's got to be nearing 40% a year. Like, in its totality, like 30% at least of just how many different people are in different places. And the continuity, I think, is just more difficult than ever. And that position has to have it to be great. Yeah, and the offensive line, especially. Like that, if there's ever a position group that's going to struggle from a lack of continuity, that that makes sense. And it kind of, you know, it, it, it's perfectly understandable why there are certain groups that are still tr trying to figure out the right rotation of guys. Wonder about that with South Carolina. I, I worry about KJ and I worry about Spencer Rattler. I worry about the level that they're playing at and the hits that they're taking because they feel like they're one bad hit away from just being cooked. And with those offensive lines, how much they've been a liability in pass protection, I, I just I, I do find myself kind of wincing when they take some of these shots. What do you see with the, the South Carolina up front? What did you see over the weekend? Because you, you saw them in consecutive weekends yeah. there to judge kind of whether or not they're, they're reaching that level that they hope they would get to. Well, one thing they told us, Connor, is that they were going to run a lot more 12 personnel to try to protect. And I, just, I didn't think we got as much of it. And, uh, you know, I do think Dowell will bring more of that to the table moving forward. Here's the good news for both of those quarterbacks. Now, it's not that you're not going to get any, but there are not many teams that have as guys, as many guys who can rip it off the edge like Tennessee does this year. Um, I think edge rusher in general is also down in the SEC right now. Like, yeah, you got a Dallas Turner and a Harold Perkins, but like Tennessee's got like four guys who can legit go out wide and are a problem to deal with. Um, Tree is going to keep coming on. He's a true freshman. Like it's, it's just, you're, it's going to be hit and miss. And, you know, they got, I think now Wanamaker out at right tackle will be a little bit better. They've got Trey Knox to be able to help. Some of the other tight ends are coming on. And I do think you have a different choice of running backs who can help in different ways. Like the carry on is actually, it's crazy to say it because he's a former receiver and quarterback, but like he's better in pass pro than Mario Anderson. Uh, and I think Juju same way, like he can help there a little bit more. So they'll get a little bit healthier out of the break. And I think that'll be of assistance. And then they just won't play as team as many teams that are as good off the edge, but you'll, you'll continue to see some half rolls. They'll move the pocket a little bit, quick ball distribution, 
Um, I think that's a big portion of it. And the same thing with KJ, like, I don't know another room in the country that has top to bottom the overall talent that the Texas A&M defensive line room does. Like, I mean, it's they uh, there were numbers getting sacks off the edge. I had to look up. Like, I never I never heard of them. I'm like, who is this? Now we've got another kid coming in here. Like, who the hell is this guy? I mean, they legit have eight or nine that anybody in the country would take. Anyone, including Georgia, Alabama, LSU, like they would all take those guys, and they can move them around and be different places. I mean, like the one play. We showed it Monday night on Reading Rack that Shamar Turner makes when he literally goes past the line of scrimmage and retracts to tackle Rocket Sanders right after he catches the screen. I'm like, dude, at 295, like that's not fair. You're not supposed to do that. So I, I, it's not that they're not going to play good D-lines. They will, but maybe not to the level that they saw this weekend every single week. And then the coaches just got to keep coaching around it. Like you've got to get those guys help. You've got to chip. You got to move the pocket. Like that's the thing I think is killing Arkansas right now is they don't have that East West guy. Like at least, at least South Carolina has like a Marion Brown who, if they want to jet sweep him, they can, if they want to get him something quick on the perimeter, they can. Um, Arkansas needs that guy bad. Like they need the, the quick distribution. Give me a home run or at least make us respect it outside of the box a little bit, or come on a jet sweep to make you play us East and West. They just don't have that guy right now. And I think they'll continue to work around it. But yeah, it's KJ. I'm not near as worried about because that dude's a, I mean, he's massive. Like he looks like left tackles that I played with at Auburn. Like it's scary. Um, who has that advantage up front? Bama's offensive line or A&M's defensive line with how well they've been playing since Miami? Texas A&M because they're so deep, so versatile, can do so many things well. They can strike and shed. They can penetrate, disrupt with quickness and power if they need to. Uh, you saw the play McKinley Jackson on fourth and one where he slammed. It's not actually, I don't even think it was a slant. It was just like a little swim move and then flat down the line of scrimmage. And like, he's one of those like low center of gravity guys that I used to, he, I hated playing against him more than anybody else. He's not supposed to get that laterally that fast. And he did. Um, and it's not that the Alabama offensive line can't handle him. Like Tyler Booker can handle it. Latham can handle it. You know, uh, First off, Seth McLaughlin's got to figure the snaps out. Like that's at this point in the year, that's that that can't keep happening. I just think that group has looked pretty good throughout the whole year, and the Alabama offensive line has looked really good for one game. And I know they've moved some things and they've talked about it and done some things, and the quarterback situation makes it a little more difficult. But right now, if I have to go one way or the other, I, I go A and M D line. Last one for you. Uh, Kirby said that he thinks every SEC team should be ranked. You've seen more of them than he has. Is is he wrong? Um, yes, uh, because uh, <laughs> um, I, there are a few towards the bottom that should not be ranked right now. Um, I was trying to I was trying to bring up like the AP and just see like towards the bottom of it, like, like who's getting votes. Okay, like I think Fresno is a really good football team. Nobody's going to really talk about them. Um, I think Oregon State's a really good football team. Like Utah's a really good team. Duke's a really good team. Um, Miami obviously housed an SEC team or a, a good SEC team early this year. So like, I'm not going to take Louisville and those teams and say, you should be out. And all of a sudden, like Vanderbilt should be in and Florida should be in and Auburn should be in like Auburn struggles to throw a forward pass right now. Like they should not be ranked. Was that environment amazing? Yes. Did you have a good plan? Yes. Ron Roberts, good plan. Yes. Defense play hard. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean they should be ranked. So, yeah, I'm not I'm, – I appreciate Kirby. I love Kirby. I respect him. But I'm going to disagree with him on that one. 
I need to get to Kirby's uh, coaches poll uh, ballot that he that he fills out. I'm, that needs to see the light of day on Sunday. Can't wait to see it. Just Vandy sitting there at like twenty two or something like that. Um, oh, last last one for you. I I, I saw Jordan. You mean, you mean Claude's coaches ballot, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That, let's be honest. Every SID in America has had to. Fill. I I think even Claude is above that at this point in his career. He's like, oh, the coaches. Oh, he's, he's, he's definitely handing that down to somebody else. Like you yeah. got to handle it. Yeah, that's like third person in command. Um, I saw Jordan isn't going to be on the call uh, this Saturday night with you guys. He's leaving you guys to join Joe Tess, Katie George, um, probably because Jesse Palmer's got like one of his 15 shows that he's got to do something for, I'm just assuming. I don't like that. Who do I need to talk to in order to make sure that that does not happen for the rest of the season? Uh, that's a great question. I think there are multiple people that are in charge of that, but I'll just – I just you can just go through Amanda. I'm sure she can handle that. She can probably get That's you right, right in touch with them. Yeah. yeah, she'll she'll she has a direct line. And I'm sure she would just connect you, uh, like the media operator that she is, and you'd be right there on the phone with them to to voice all of your displeasure immediately. Who's fill is are you having anybody fill in for Jordan or are you gonna be in the booth? Oh no, I'm gonna do both. I'm gonna zip line down to the field yeah, and do God. interviews and then jetpack back up to the booth. No, Alyssa Lang will be with us. So we're just disrupting as many crews as possible this week as we can and just change them all around. It's just a, it's just a juggling act. I'm excited to work with the list. I'm excited to be in the, in the booth with Tom, you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot more offensive line play this week than uh, a lot less coverage talk, a lot less uh, quarterback fundamental talk, not as much off platform, arm angle, C grip, U grip. Yeah, no, not as much. That. You just still need to go down to the field to do your film breakdown down there not in not in the booth i know you got all the capabilities up there but make sure that you my do producer that who i mentioned earlier billy he he actually brought that up yesterday he's like i don't know how we're gonna do read and react promo but we'll figure it out i was like oh this has got it she can handle that like she's gonna her. do that instead of out of pocket though yeah. it's fair yeah i guess we should do an out of pocket promo spikes wears medium gloves don't forget that <laughs> cole appreciate it man we'll do this again soon thanks connor I'm not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Florida great and former all pro defensive end Javon curse. Uh, Javon, you, you are leading the all sacks conference for sacks underwear, which is a group NIL deal made up of six sack leaders across college football. Sacks is going to donate a thousand dollars to the testicular cancer foundation for every sack from this group of players this season. The person with the most sacks of this group of six will be awarded the balls not stuck to the Theisman trophy, which is just an all-time name. That's that's unbelievable. This, this feels like a partnership made in heaven for you. Listen, just the name of the trophy alone was 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 enough to have me to be, be on board. I mean, that name right there was pretty cool. But then again, we're talking about sacks, sacks, sacks underwear, and I kind of specialized in sacks in college and in the pros. So it was like a no-brainer for me to get involved. And it's also gonna it's also gonna raise a lot of money for the testicular cancer foundation. So I'm going to be honest, in order to prep for this, I, I watched your sacks ad promoting this cause. Uh, you've been out of the NFL for, for 13 years. You are still, in my book, the freak. Um, what, what's the, the workout regimen looking like for you now? Man, I'm still in the gym four days a week. And the, the crazy thing about that is um, people think I work out for the look of it. Now I work out now for the, the the mentals of it because like um when you leave at that gym like when you go in there you kind of not feeling good but you leave out there feeling good and especially like during the COVID times I really like made sure I was still in the gym. But um, 
Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt. I was going to ask who gave you that nickname because it's 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 like to have something last for like three decades is incredible. It, it it is pretty cool, and um, it's also I add to that as well. But um, I got the nickname probably from my teammates in college. I don't know if it was um Johnny Rutledge or Tim Beauchamp, but I just remember just coming out of a an individual meeting room where we got we break down the defense to your respective positions. Then you go watch the game film. And we go watch the game film, and I see something that I did. And to me, it's just like, I'm like, I was, I'm just that same kid that used to do that same thing in the backyard in Fort Myers with my cousins and all my friends, like, up the road. But when I did it then, it was like, dude, you're not supposed to be able to make that tackle. Like, the play starts over here, you chase it down 50 yards and making a tackle. Like, you're unaccounted for. Like, how do you, how you do that? Dude, you're a freak. And then the next week, I heard the same thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's not a bad nickname. I mean, there's a lot of guys that came before me and after me, but they chose to give me that nickname. That's not a nickname you give yourself. And I earned that one. And um, it was it, it, it worked out it worked out pretty good for me, and it's still working out for me. Did Spurrier call you that? Because that that to me is the ultimate sign of respect. If he did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did call me that or whatever. And like, um, whenever we go back to Gainesville and have a few things here and there. He will call me either he called me Javon or he called me Freak. So, uh, what were your interactions with uh, you only had one year of overlap with this guy, my buddy Chris Doring, who's now doing great things at ICC Network? But people forget when you got to Florida, this is how this nickname applies and how freakish you were. Like, you were a DB starting out, which is just crazy to think about. And I know you only had the one year there, but maybe you had like some scout team reps against Doring. But did you ever get to kind of like D him up in practice and like, you know, maybe hit him with, <laughs> I hit him with a big hit over the middle or something? No, I didn't um, hit him with, with a with a big hit. Um, this was like when I first got in, I was a safety. I can, in high school, I played free safety and wide receiver. So once I got to UF, um, they had me like working with the safeties like my first year. And I was getting into those guys' stuff. I mean, um, the Ike's the – I don't know if I ever got the Redell Anthony's or the Ike Hilliards, but I got CD one time. Just um, we had like a – maybe like a – I had like a zone drop, and uh, my job was to be getting his face and give him problems. And I think I gave him a nice jam. But then again, Chris was taller, so he had a bigger target. Those short guys, I could not, I could not get up in their stuff. But uh, with, with Chris, I did one time, but – and then sometimes I used to, you know, I used to D up um, the, the the good receivers in practice. But for some reason, I was a little bit more aggressive and they wanted me closer to the line. And that's how everything worked out. And I ended up playing on the line, maybe in, in, yeah, in the NFL. Yeah, that ended up, I think, being a smart decision worked out for you. Just, just perfectly <laughs> yeah. fine. Uh, where did you watch 62 to 24 from? Because I'm not trying to just bring up only bad memories, but I imagine when you're when you're redshirting, you're you're losing your mind watching that as a defensive player. Yeah. Oh, hold on. The 52 24, the which game was that? I'm talking Nebraska. Oh man. Oh, I was oh yeah, okay. I, I, I try to suppress, I try to like get that out of my memory because I was on the sideline. I wasn't playing that game. I was a, a red shirt. Right. Um, what I thought about that right there, um, it just remind it just let me know that, hey, maybe we're not as maybe you're not as great as you think you are, because at that point, playing before we played that game against Nebraska, I thought we were like the best thing since sliced bread. Like we were beating up on everybody, could no one jump, could no one guard our receivers. No one do anything, and then we ran into the Fiesta Bowl against that team wearing the red and white. And Tommy Frazier and 
Um, Lawrence Phillips, yes, they had their way that day. But then again, and also that their defense was was bring that heat and the big boys. I had a good time watching the the D linemen. I think they had the 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 built the Peter built the Peter the Peters the Peter brothers, and they were kicking some butt on that line or whatever. But I mean, we um got our butts kicked that day, and then the next year we. Um, went through the season, only lost one game against Florida State in the end, and then ended up uh, winning the national the next year against Florida State in the Sugar Bowl. And I think that was 52-20, if I'm not mistaken. So that's why I was kind of confused on that um, on that score then, because that was the, the the Sugar Bowl that we beat Florida State to win the national. Yeah, I don't blame you for for suppressing that. That that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Um, it, it worked out well for you, though. You probably played a big part in, in Bob Stoops getting that Oklahoma job because you were such a, a an integral part of that defense and being able to kind of bounce back from that. Did, did he send you any royalty checks after that? No, he didn't. But um, I think it's like it's a, a mutual respect thing because um, back when we was during that time, we got the nick, we got the, the names as Stoops troops. And we just uh, took that to heart, and it, it worked out for us. I mean, like it was like when Stoops came in, the, the stuff that he brought with him it was it was exciting, it was fun, and it, it allowed us like to play football and to get after the quarterback. I actually think your skill set is so perfect for the modern game. And even though like you had a ton of sacks, you had a great NFL career. What do you think your career would have looked like if you had been in today's pass happy NFL with how valued those edge rusher guys are? Oh uh, man, it'll be endless. It, it, it like I'll probably earn a different nickname, probably than the freak. Somebody super freak, maybe. Now I'm playing, <laughs> no, but like definitely, um, it, it, it is a pass happy league right now, and I would definitely be getting after the quarterback. I wouldn't mind playing in a three four at some point, or a team that schemed a little bit more versus me getting in a four eye, getting down in the middle, which is unnecessary for me with the speed that I have. Why even? connect a, a, a sled to me and let me go. So um, I, I, I think that I probably could have like a, a, a bigger impact on the game and damn sure like uh, would make some more changes. They would have to make some more changes to stop me from getting to the quarterback. I think so. If <laughs> if early 20s Javon Curse is in the, in the NFL draft, top five pick, I would assume, right? Yeah. Like in this day and age. Yeah. 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 I think you would be, especially after the way that people freak out about the combine stuff now, too, with what <laughs> you did. I mean, God, like they would, it would be so, like, if Trayvon Walker can go number one with what he did with his skill yeah. set, people would yeah. look at you and be like, oh, God, number one, number two overall pick. Definitely would be. Um, that's another thing I did very well was my testing, like with my hands, my vertical, my 40, all that stuff right there was even better to add to the way I played on the field. So all in all, I guess I am a freak, you know. True story. Um, I When I would play Madden at my buddy's house when I was like nine or 10 or something like that, and it was the Eddie George cover. And I was always the Titans. And I was, when I was on defense, I would switch to be you because you were the most fun player to play in video games on the defensive side of the ball. It was everything that you could do. Do you ever go back and play old video games as yourself? Because I would just do that all the time. I still have that Madden, what you're talking about. I think that was either 90, I think that was 99 or, or 2000 Madden. I still play that. And also, I kick butt in street, the, the game NFL Street. Yes. I was, um, 
I'm I'm really good on that one as well. But I, I hear from a lot of people all the time about about Madden, about the cheat code. I'm like, um, I'm like, what cheat code? They're like you. <laughs> put you out wide and maybe stick a line outside linebacker in front of the tackle. The tackle gets distracted by the by the linebacker and it's a free shot. It was always a free shot, number 90 on the quarterback, no matter who it was. Yeah, you were very, very good. You were very fun to play with because of all the different things you can do. Um, have you had a chance to to watch this Florida defense? And if so, just kind of what are your thoughts on on your impressions of, of being able to kind of see what Austin Armstrong has done to try and revamp this defense that's been down the last few years? Well, obviously, um, I, I don't think we have – well, I think we somewhat have some guys in there, um, some good guys like who are who are making some plays, but I feel like we really um, – no, I don't know if we have the guys or I don't know if it's the scheme, but um, I like what our defensive – what our DBs are doing, like on, on the back end and the linebackers, but um, I think up front – um, probably if we had like one more, like one more guy, like to, to make some noise because um, I don't see as much pressure as we normally get on the quarterback. And then, but the back end, we, we, we're always going to have a, a, a good DB or maybe two good DBs. Yeah, it was interesting hearing Herb Street talk about the, the lack of speed on Florida's defense. I'm like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard that described about a Florida defense, but you know. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to be the case. Lacking lacking some dudes right now, just trying to make it work as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. I want to get you out of here with some some rapid fire, just uh, five questions. First thing that comes to mind, does that work for you? Let's do it. All right, true or false, the late Steve McNair is the best football player you ever shared a field with? Facts. Yes. True. Okay, yeah. I was hoping you weren't going to say T.O. That would have been, been a little bit tough. I, I have a soft spot for Steve McNair. <laughs> <laughs> no, Steve was a warrior. Steve went hard. Steve was always like ready for work, no matter how he was feeling or what he was going through. So, yeah, my, my dude. Okay, when you close your eyes, what's the sack that you picture the most? Um, my sack, cost fumble, return for a touchdown, rookie year, um, for the last game of the season, and it also was the one that broke the team's the team's franchise sack record. Bam. Oh, that's good. That's good. I thought you were going to say the safety in the Music City Miracle. Um, about that. No, that was a good one there. But I mean, I I get the cost. It was a bunch of talk going on all week. This guy was calling me out and then saying I'm just a human being. I'm like, no, you're wrong. I'm a human, <laughs> I'm a human being with the nickname The Freak. And that's what it's going to be today. And I had a chance to beat the guy, strip the ball, pick it up and take it back for a touchdown. So, yes, that was the one right there. Oh, I can't imagine ever responding to that. Oh, no, I'm actually not a human being. I'm a freak, and you're going to see exactly why. Uh, okay, what what would have swayed you to go to Miami as a South Florida kid? Oh, man. Um, probably if I would not have had so much fun during my recruiting trip. During my recruiting trip, uh, Jamie German was my host. He was out of Fort Myers, played receiver there, and we were hanging out with Warren Sapp and bumping into Luke, Uncle Luke, Luther Campbell. And I was that was that kid was like, you know what? This is fun and all, but I may be right back up the road in Fort Myers two hours from here if I was to come here because it was just I just personally felt like I I had so much fun, so much stuff goes on down there. I'm like, yeah, maybe I need to go elsewhere, maybe up north somewhere, even if it is just in North Florida. But I decided to do that. Miami, too much fun. Confirmed. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you still dunk with the the eighty six inch wingspan and the the thirty seven inch vertical? Yeah, 
the biggest key is these hands. If, if you can hold the ball, if I can get high enough, it's just get over the goal and boop. So, yeah, I can. Very jealous of that. Okay, last one for you. How many more sacks would you have had in your career if you had been wearing sacks underwear throughout the entire time? At least, um, I would say at least four seasons. Because sex just put me in like a mindset, man. It's just, you're just cool. And then with the ballpark technology, I probably would have had, like, because, you know, in regular underwear, you know, it probably stick to you, you know, stick to your thighs. And if I'm just walking around daily and even after practicing with my stuff situated, like I'm wearing a jock strap, um, I think it probably would have accounted for at least four more sacks a season. Boom. Can't disagree with that. Really, really appreciate the time, man. On behalf of Sachs and the, as you said, balls not stuck to the Theisman trophy. This has been great. Be well, man. We'll do this again soon. Thank you. All right, well, let's close this out with some lad of the week. Uh, my lad of the week is Cohen David Jende. Ever heard of him? No? No. Probably not, because as we sit here and breathe, he is less than a day old. Um you can't make this stuff up. My new nephew, shout out to my my sister-in-law, Lindsay, her husband, Michael, um, had a new baby um, on October 3rd. And my only nephew, my first and only nephew, his first name is Cohen, which I don't know how this thing just keeps circling around and the connections because mm-hmm. um, um, Lauren's sister, like her husband, We've kind of joked that we look a lot alike and we might have some family lineage as well. And mm-hmm. it's spelled differently than Liam Cohen, so we're not going there just yet. Um, but it's it is weird the the connections and, and the way that this is set up. So yeah. Cohen, David Jende, six pounds, eight ounces, I think. Uh happy to to have a nephew, happy to have a niece as well. Uncle Life. I haven't really gotten to experience it a whole lot yet. Only a couple of different times, but uh looking forward to hopefully being the fun uncle, that process, man. Um, gosh, two kids. When you go from one to two, I've heard all the crazy stories about it. Not in that world yet. Not in that world just mm-hmm. yet. But I uh, hope that Lindsay and Michael are doing well. Cohen David Jende coming to an SEC roster. Uh, yeah, probably more like a Big Ten roster. Who are we kidding? They're in <laughs> Indianapolis. A 2020, no, 2042. Yeah, Meh. that's what it'll be. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats to them. I was uh, definitely an uncle. I don't, I don't have any kids, obviously, so I was an uncle way before because my siblings are older. It's 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 the perfect balance to me because it's like you get to pull up, be cool, bring some presents, take them out to eat, drop them off. I, I love it. Drop off and leave and escape. Yep. yep. It's best yeah, to do it. I'm never. I'm 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 always good for like a like a man talk every once in a while. Like, hey man, you know you gotta you gotta you know get it together. You gotta start doing your schoolwork. I can do one of those every couple of months, but I'm not there to enforce it. So I can say whatever I want, and then I'm out. Um, on a related, uh, unrelated note, I have a last of the week honorable mention, uh, which is my sister Ash, who got proposed to, uh, over the weekend. Ooh. So congrats to her. Um, she is, you know, one of those people that was always like, oh, you know, I'll never, I'll never find love. I'll never get married. Um, and she's like in her forties now. So, um, super duper cool for her. Um, and her, her, um, you know, fiance now abs. So just want to shout them out. And then my official lad of the week is of course, friend of the program, Ramon Walter Zamar. Jamar Davis, better known as Ray Davis. He was such a lad when he came on the podcast. Love that interview. Love the amount of, I hate to use the word humility because it sounds like something that's humiliating, but humbleness, humility, whatever you call it. I loved hearing him talk. I loved hearing his story. 
Um, and yeah, you know, as we talked about, he's a guy who went from, you know, Vandy putting himself kind of on the map in a Florida win to now, you know, almost. And I, I, we didn't even talk about this, but I felt like it was a little bit whack that they didn't try to break the all the rushing records. Like, because he had them in hand at the first half. If he got hurt ahead of the Georgia game, you would have been kicking yeah. yourself. That would have been bad. Yeah, they didn't even need him. As funny as it is, they could literally just sit him down and play the backups because he played so well. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 all about, you know, being a lad's all about believing in yourself, changing the narrative. And I mean, there is no better story than Vandy and Kentucky going 2-0 and against Florida behind, you know, leading rusher Ray Davis. So yeah, I think it's, you know, so cool. We talked about, like I said, going into it, this amazing rush defense that uh, Florida had. And then just to see the way that he was just having fun out there. He was like a kid in a schoolyard, just, you know what I'm saying, dragging guys in the end zone. They were running scared from him like Godzilla. They were throwing guys on the line. It didn't matter. There were 13 guys. He was still scoring a touchdown. So yeah, it's, you know, it's all about being ready when your name is called, being humble. And I think that he has done a great job and probably, you know, made himself some money, made himself a career. So it's super cool to see guys that kind of do it you know, even being a transfer guy, it's not like he went and jumped ship and went to USC. It's, you know, he kept it in the SEC and he just kept his head down and worked. I think he's a perfect, you know, Mark Davis player and, uh, or not Mark Davis. Mark Stoops. Mark Stoops. Stoops. Definitely not Mark Davis. <laughs> yeah. The opposite, <laughs> the effective player is what he is. Therefore, he's the opposite. But yeah, he's a, he's a perfect Mark Stoops player. So yeah, I'm glad that he found his home. And like I said, hopefully we'll be seeing him at the next level based on, you know, what he's done this season. If you know the Ray Davis story, um, and, I'll be 100% transparent here. I did not dig into as much of his family background as I had initially anticipated. And um, I tried a little bit lightly on that. And some of that is, is a gut call. Some of that is just kind of understanding the dynamics of the situation. If you want to know more about why he is such an easy guy to root for and why that is a kid who has been through a lot in his life and not just, oh, like he, you know, I, I hate to, to generalize and say that these stories are so common, but like he, it's more than just, Hey, he had a rough upbringing. You know, he didn't have like two parents that were always around like this. This goes beyond that in terms of what that guy did to get from point A to point B to each place. Vanderbilt communications actually wrote a really good story about his family background. A couple, uh, I think it was like early last year. I want to say that you can go look up if you want to read more about Ray Davis, but just a guy who has been through, he's been through a lot. And, um, and really, really hoping that he has more great days like what he had on Saturday. And exactly as you mentioned, hope that guy has an NFL future and he gets to play pro sports because he has been fun to watch, man. I hope we get a healthy version of Ray Davis the rest of the way. And he has clearly been, in my opinion, the heart and soul of not just that 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 offense, but maybe that team as a whole oh, yeah. and the toughness that he has brought to the table. Very much a Mark Stoops, not so much a Mark Davis guy both redheads though i think that place yeah yeah all right but week yeah six. Lots, lots of lads in the last of the week so really good good week uh vibes wise for us good week for lads good week for lasses 100 if you have not leave us a five-star review subscribe to our youtube channel where you can watch every episode of the saturday down south podcast which is presented by texas pete follow us on the app formerly known as twitter at the sds pod at set down south at cgo guerra at go so hard thanks guys talk soon